Hello and welcome to FireDev, a fireside chat with people in the industry. And today I have Seth Allison with me. Seth, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to uh, get into this. It's always fun to talk about game development with other game developers. Oh yeah, for sure. So you've been working at Supercell for about five years now. What do you do there? Uh, a little bit of everything, but um, my game, my title is a game designer. And so when I was first hired at Supercell, I was hired onto the Clash Royale team, and my focus was primarily new card development and balancing of the existing cards. Um, over time, I, I got into the community side and did the videos and a lot of social media presence. And um, after about two years on Clash Royale, I moved on to Clash of Clans, where I worked uh, for about a year and a half with the kind of headlining thing that I worked on being the Clan Capitals feature that was released uh, last year. Um, after Clan Capitals, I moved over to Clash Quest, which was in beta at the time, um, and was on Clash Quest until the project was discontinued. And uh, almost a year ago now, actually, it was um, about summer of last year is when we decided to discontinue Clash Quest. And since then, I've actually been working um, on our creators program. Okay, so what's the creators? Actually, before we talk about the creators program, why was the decision made to shut down Clash Quest? Yeah, well... Supercell has very high standards um, for mm. its new games and Clash Quest. Um, so Clash Quest was a primarily single player puzzle game. It was uh, it was in the kind of genre of match three games, but had some combat RPG elements layered on top. It was designed to be sort of a mass market version of, um, you know, Puzzle and Dragons or Empires and Puzzles, right? Like the idea of these these match three RPGs are um very popular with a small set of the population. And we were hoping to make um, a puzzle game that had uh, maybe not a similar depth, but you know, a compelling amount of depth that could hit tens of millions of players. Um, uh, Clash quest was in beta for about over a year and just never quite found that audience. You know, it was um, perhaps a bit too simple for the hardcore gamers or maybe a bit too mathy and strategic for the more casual puzzle gamers. So it, you know, sometimes you like to think that that middle ground is like the perfect sweet spot, but at least for Clash Quest, it seemed like it was, um, you know, appealing to neither audience uh, mm -hmm. well enough to be a, a real consistent success. So after a few reworks and a few major swings at the mechanics, trying to get it over the hump, um, the decision was made just to discontinue the project. And li like all games at Supercell, it was a team decision. We had um, set goals for ourselves in about February of 2022. Uh, and the idea was, okay, we, we really have to turn this around or we're going to voluntarily end this project. So we set our goals in February. We did um, one big rework uh, update in June. And I think when we came back in August, um, you know, it hadn't reached the goals that we had set for ourselves. So we discussed, you know, hey, as a team, what, what's our next step? And uh, we decided collectively to discontinue the game and move on to other projects. Okay. So when a decision like that is made to discontinue the game, is it literally, you know, cold turkey, shut it down? Or do you let the users know and say, okay, this game will be on the App Store for, you know, another two months and may receive updates? in those two months and certain features, if they were online based will be available for two months. Like, how does that work? Mm -hmm. I, 
you know, closing down beta games is something that Supercell, uh, for better or worse, has a lot of history with. Of course, we're very, uh, we've killed more games than we've launched globally. And so we've gotten a little bit better at the process of shutting down these games. So the process now is to, yeah, leave it on the App Store for a few months, let people know our plans. We also allow players who have spent money in our beta games to transfer their purchases to other live Supercell games. So if you you know, bought $20 worth of gems in Clash Quest, we'll let you transfer it and get $20 in um, Brawl Stars or Clash Royale or whatever. So you can, can uh, not be punished for, for investing in a beta game. And then at some point we remove it from the App Store and then a bit later take down the servers and the game is no longer playable. Okay, so the proper process. I mean, I, I do like that, that you give the players, you know, the man, like you said, if they spent $20 on, you know, Clash Quest, they can go to like Clash of Clans and spend $20 there and get items. And is that only for beta games or is that for other games as well if you decided to shut them down? I mean, it's only for beta games because those are the only games we've ever shut down. Uh, okay. Supercell has never discontinued a globally launched game. So, uh, you know, uh, obviously if we ever came to that, then the process would be determined then. But um, yeah. for our beta games, I don't know if that's even always been the case with all of our beta games, but I think it's been pretty consistent since uh, my time at the company, which would include betas like um, Rush Wars and Heyday Pop and mm-hmm. and Clash Quest. Okay. And like, what would you say the single biggest metric that Supercell looks at? Is it the financial side? Is it the number of users? Is it retention? You know, what is it that really makes Supercell get up and say, okay, that's doing really well, or that's not hitting that one metric? Mm-hmm. Well, our um, core values are one of the things, and we talk about it a lot. Like I think most companies, you sort of repeat the core values to each other pretty often is that we're trying to make games that are played by as many people as possible for years and remembered for decades. And all of those words are pointing towards retention. You know, we want as many players as yeah. possible. Um, we want them to play for years and we want those multi-year experiences playing our games to be something that forms memories that you hold for decades. So um uh, I would say that D1 and D30 retention are sort of the numbers we look for the most because, of course, that's um, the earliest indicators you have that you might have a game that people are really, really interested in. Um, obviously, it'd be great to get like D365, whatever, day, one year retention, but it's difficult to do that without having, of course, a one year long beta. So. Yeah we tend to look at early retentions and kind of the ratios between them. Like if there's not a lot of decay between one to seven and then seven to 14, 14 to 30, whatever, then you can sort of project that there's probably not going to be a lot of decay beyond D30. Um, if you have amazing day one retention and it just decays really quickly by D30, then, you know, what are the odds that it's going to go back from D30? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, that was, um, I think an issue with Clash Quest is that we actually had really good D1 retention and it had a very uh, over a year long beta because Clash Quest had some of the best D1 retention of, of any Supercell beta ever. And so it was really promising. Like players, we we wanted to believe that players were really looking for a game like this, weren't really excited about it, but um, we just weren't able to maintain a really high level of retention throughout the first several months. Okay, yeah, that happens. So you mentioned that you did some community side stuff and with videos. Like, what were those videos? Were you in the videos? Were you helping publishing them? You know, what was the? 
Yeah. Um, so I, I have a kind of interesting path towards Supercell. Um, I, well, I got into the game industry from being a competitive gamer. Like I was somebody who, who played uh, tabletop gaming for <clears throat> tabletop gaming tournaments for money. Um, things like magic, the gathering poker, things like that. Um, and I got into game design because I sort of wanted to create these really competitive systems that, uh, that players themselves would enjoy. So what, what ended up happening was I was working at another game company, Scopely, in uh, 2015, 2016. And I remember playing Clash Royale the first day that it came out. It was, you know, when you work at a mobile game company, every time Supercell or any of these other major companies release a game, they tell you about it. And it's like, hey, you know, Supercell's new game is in beta. Everyone download it. Let's talk about it. Let's, you know, see what they're, what they're up to. So I went home that first day of Clash Royale being in beta played it at home on my couch and I was like, wow, this, this is the next big thing. Like, you know, I think a lot of people had that feeling, but from the first night that I played clash Royale, I was just really hooked. I couldn't put it down. I wanted to get more cards. I wanted to level them up. And so, uh, about day three of clash Royale's beta, I was streaming it on Twitch. Uh, very clunkily i'd never streamed before so it was like i had a black background i didn't have like an overlay or anything it was just like a webcam and the gameplay and some text overlaid onto it and i started streaming right away and i was sort of learning streaming on the fly while while playing clash royale and um i ended up getting into esports for for clash royale so i was uh, a tournament caster first in uh, la at a company called nge which was doing their kind of own um, homegrown Clash Royale tournament. And I started casting that on Saturdays. And then from casting that, I got hired onto more official Supercell-based productions. Uh, and so I was Clash Royale's like kind of primary esports caster for about two years, uh, from 2016 to 2018. So I had this experience on camera. I was sort of an unofficial member of the community. And when I applied to be a game designer, you know, I had this game design background, so it sort of fit. But when I joined, um, the existing game designer on the team did not uh, want to be on camera. He's you know, a brilliant game designer, but just not, you know, d- didn't want to be a community voice. And they were really desperate for somebody to be on camera. And so it was something that I could do. I could contribute to the team and sort of help out by chipping in some time on the videos. And I was one of the kind of main two faces in the clash Royale videos uh, for about two years. Yeah. From 2018 to about 2020. Okay. I'm definitely going to dig those out afterwards and I'm guessing they're still available on YouTube or somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. My YouTube name was the rum ham, which is a reference. Yeah. It's a reference to it's always sunny in Philadelphia. But if you search the rum ham clash Royale, you'll bring up a bunch of tournaments that I had, uh, done the casting for including king's cup two which was a big tournament put on by youtube in their in their big um area in, in los angeles um and then yeah once i joined there's a whole bunch of tv royales which are are the name of our community update videos um tv royale videos that feature me and often another community manager named drew who um is a very very downbeat British man. And so my high energy and his sobering uh, <laughs> deadpanness, I think, made a really fun pair. Yeah, I'm sure it did. So you said right now you're working on the creators program. You know, what is the creators program? Uh, yeah, so Supercell is a company that I think has been reaching out to um, 
well, create well we say creators i guess some other companies might say influencers but social media stars were something that i think supercell really tapped into early supercell is one of the biggest gaming presences on youtube because we were just on you know on YouTube back in 2012, 2013, kind of promoting this game and mobile gamers had access to YouTube. And so just very quickly that that community grew. Um, we started bringing creators into sort of a secret, um, you know, Skype channel or Slack channel back in, I don't know, 2014. Um, not, I didn't do this. I wasn't at the company at the time, but Supercell community managers would bring them in and just give them sneak peeks. You know, hey, we have a new game update coming. Here's some, some pictures or some video clips, whatever. Um, and we allowed YouTubers, I think pretty early on in, for the gaming industry to get this exclusive content to share with the community before the official games would would put out that info. Um, and over time, that just evolved. We had uh, creators in our Super Bowl ad for Clash of Clans. Eventually, the Slack program, the Slack chat grew into a much more fully fledged out creators program that uh, it's a web portal that you can sign up for. If you have enough YouTube subscribers or Twitch followers, you can get in. Uh, once in, we have the ability to give you information. We try to give um, support and networking. Um, it's a really it's a really great program because we found a lot of value in building these relationships with content creators early and often. So we'd like to get all the content creators who are interested in making Supercell games into one place and sort of help them feed off each other and facilitate collaborations and things like that. And so um, <clears throat> Without giving away too much, we want the creators program to be the absolute best program in the game industry. And so that's going to require a little bit of game design touch. And so I'm, you know, working with the creator program manager and the technical producers that build it all to add some new features that might make it even better for creators in the future. Okay. So it sounds interesting. I'm sure you got some more exciting stuff to announce over the coming months and years for the creators. So What's your favorite Supercell game? A Clash Royale. I mean, Clash it's, Royale. it's it's not close. Um, I will say, <laughs> so when I first started playing Supercell games, it was uh, in 2013. I was actually working at Zynga at the time. And mobile gaming was in a really interesting space early on because people didn't really understand games as a service yet. It was, it was sort of thought, um, you know, the biggest hit games were like Angry Birds. Yes. And Angry Birds being a a box, you know, quote unquote box title, you just pay for it once as a, at a premium price and then you never spend again. Um, the sales for those kind of games looked a lot like the box games that you'd buy on a console. They would come out, they'd get all this featuring on the Apple store. Uh, they'd sell a bunch of units early on and then there'd be this long tail of progressively less sales every day until eventually it's not really, you know, no one's buying it anymore. Yeah, everyone's got so, it. <laughs> Yeah. And so when you looked at the top grossing charts, it was kind of interesting because the top grossing charts would basically have uh, some some top 10 games. And then one day there'd be some brand new game in the top three, and then you'd slowly watch it crawl down the charts. And at the time, the top grossing charts was available. So it wasn't like an industry secret. You didn't need a sensor tower subscription. You just every single person could see in their own iPad or iPhone, which games were making the most money. And you would see, you know, like Angry Birds 2 or whatever come out be at number one and then slowly ding, 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 day by day kind of fall down. Um, so I remember scrolling to the bottom around like the top 200 and seeing this game called Clash of Clans. And then each day I'd kind of scroll the top 200 grossing and I would notice that Clash of Clans would slowly 
be moving up. It was like one of the only games that was steadily moving up. And it was really consistent, you know, like it'd go from 170 one day to 150 to 130, 125, 115, 110, you know, like every single day it was moving up. And eventually it got into the top 50 and just, you know, marched its way to number one and, and really never came down. So somewhere around, like, I don't know, top 100 grossing, I was like, all right, I got to try this game out. Started playing Clash of Clans and, and uh, I got pretty into it. But it didn't really catch me the same way. Like, I don't know what it was, if it was the fantasy theme or just the, maybe I wasn't so familiar with build and battle games, but Clash of Clans didn't hook me right at the very, very beginning. <coughs> Sorry about that. <clears throat> but in, I want to say 2014, Boom Beach was in beta and I fell so in love with Boom Beach. I played it all the time on my iPad. It was in soft launch in Canada. I think I got to like top 50 global entirely free to play. I was just playing it so much and was so obsessed with it. And I really liked all the innovations that Boom Beach had made over Clash of Clans. And I would say Boom Beach was probably my number one Supercell game for a long time. Um, in 2015, I was working in San Francisco and I had a relatively long commute. I had to walk uh, to the Caltrain station and then take the Caltrain for like an hour to my job. And so I had a lot of this commuting time that I didn't have before. And around that same time, Smashland, which was another Supercell beta, had come out. And I got an insanely hooked on that game as well. I was playing Smashland all the time at work and on, on the the train ride to and from. And it was sort of um, like a live live action multiplayer or a PVP game. It wasn't quite as live as Clash Royale. It was still turn-based, but the turns were like 15 seconds long. So you'd take a turn, then they'd take a turn back and forth and back and forth. Um, I think I got to top 20 global on that game in their beta. Uh, I think I'm, I might have spent well. money. <laughs> I don't remember. Again, I'm a really competitive gamer. I was really into it. And I got that was like my favorite for a very long time. Interestingly enough, a lot of the team from Smashland after that beta was discontinued went on to Clash Royale. And they brought in a lot of their learnings and their development, their expertise. And I think when you if you've played both games, when you play Clash Royale almost right away, you can see the DNA of Smashland in there. So when I played Clash Royale, not only did I love it, but I think it had, I could appreciate some of the parts of the meta and the progression that seemed to have been pulled uh, from Smashland. And yeah, it was really good. And Clash Royale's still been it. I still, um, I love that game dearly. It's such a great, great head-to-head -head PVP game that so seamlessly blends like a feeling of turn-based tactical gameplay with this real-time tension. Um, yeah, Clash Royale's my favorite. Clash Royale, fair enough. Uh, so what's it like working at Supercell? Uh, it's wonderful. It's honestly the best job I've ever had. And I, I, I'm fortunate to have worked um, at several game companies before and seen how a lot of different cultures work, big companies, small companies. And I think that really helps me appreciate Supercell's culture a lot. So um, when I was, uh, the first time I ever really heard anything about Supercell culture was at GDC in 2013, I attended a talk by the Clash of Clans game lead, uh, a man named Jonas at the time, and he was talking about Supercell culture and how it's very cell-based. There was just 13 people on the Clash of Clans team. They were you know, uh, all equal. It was a very flat hierarchy and he was only the lead quote unquote, because he was the one who did the public speaking. He wasn't like, you know, a boss in any meaningful way, which was sounded really cool. And, um, yeah, he, he told this story about how they had been developing clan wars 
which is a huge feature for Clash of Clans. It's kind of the main like social competitive clan, you know, yeah, social competitive gameplay. They were developing the feature and Ilka, the CEO, uh, didn't see it until very late in the process. Like basically they didn't have any green light meetings. They didn't have to go to any executives for approval. They just sort of worked on it. And I think Ilka saw it like when he was at the Apple offices and it was coming in for approval or something. And they showed it to him like, Oh, have you seen this clan wars thing? And he's like, Oh no, I guess I haven't. I'm probably messing the story up. So I don't know how like factually accurate that is, <laughs> but uh, that was the story that was sort of told at GDC. And uh, yeah, it just felt really revolutionary, you know, um, like a really great place to work where you sort of saw your coworkers as peers and you were sort of working together towards a common goal. And so I knew I wanted to work at Supercell for years. And I, when I started doing Clash Royale esports, I had in the back of my head, like, God, I hope I hope I get to work at Supercell one day. I hope this hope helps you get me noticed. Relationships. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, I knew I had a game design background. And so while I was a caster, I really tried to lean on the you know, when they came to YouTubers for feedback on card balancing, I really tried to write thoughtful, long form feedback and show that I was, you know, more than uh, just an ugly face, <laughs> you know, more than just a more than just a voice that I could I could help out um, with some thoughtful balance and stuff. And I, I think it really, uh, really paid off. But you, you asked what it's like working at Supercell. And I will say and I tell this in our job interviews when we interview people that you know, a lot of companies tell mythologies about themselves. They want to be good at something. And so they say that's what they're good at, but it, it may not actually be the case when you work there. The thing that is absolutely true about working at Supercell is the immense amount of independence the game teams have. I mean, the game teams are really um, the lords of their own domain. Uh, the the There are game leads now and the game leads, you know, sort of manage and oversee the team, but it's super true that if you're like on a 20 person game team, that's the only people you really have to interact with and really get your ideas approved by. There isn't this layer of middle management that needs approvals. There's not green light meetings. Um, Ilka, the CEO has never come into the team space and said, you have to be doing this. You know, this is your new mandate, do this feature, do this job. Like um, it's really, truly like open, uh, independence for the game teams, which is, is remarkable. And it's been remarkable that we've been able to kind of maintain that over 10 years of the company's history, um, including through, you know, ups and downs and game launches and game kills and stuff. We've managed to keep that as a, a sacred cow in a way. Okay. That's good. And so you mentioned before that you worked at Zynga. How, like, how is it working at Zynga versus working at Supercell? What are the similarities? What are the differences? Both, you know, huge mobile game developers. Yeah. So Zynga was, is, is interesting because I worked there at a very, I guess, unique time or transitional time in its, in its history. So I, I don't want this to, this doesn't have any impact on how Zynga's run today. They're like five CEOs away from <laughs> where they are when, when I was there, but I worked at Zynga. Um, I was hired in 20, 11 june of 2011 and i worked there until about june of 2013 so about two years so zynga had this interesting thing where they were very successful with facebook games and they sort of knew mobile was the future um so they were staffing up a mobile division but didn't didn't have um any homegrown mobile hits they are uh, i take that back actually i'm sorry they had Texas Hold'em Poker, which was developed in-house, they had acquired Words with Friends, and so that was being integrated into the mobile division, and then they were trying to figure out, like, how do we make new hit games ourselves? Um, 
and yeah, it was a really exciting time. I mean, we had a ton of data. We had a lot of, um, I think, freedom to try to explore different mechanics and stuff. But um, I think Zynga, it's fair to say, was a bit more of a top-down uh, game company. There was a lot of green light meetings. It was uh, There was a lot of EA executives hired at that point in time. Well, actually, let me step back. Zynga went from about a 200-person company or 500-person company, however big it was, to about a 3,000-person company over maybe like a one-year period or two-year period. They, they grew uh, massively and were hiring a ton of people for a period of time. So I started, and on a Monday morning when I'm in my orientation, there was something like 50 people in that orientation. And supposedly, <laughs> that's, a lot. that's a lot. And supposedly, there was that many people about every week. So you figure, you know, let's say 40 people a week for 40 weeks out of the year, that's 1600 people getting hired in a year. And that maybe that sounds, that sounds right to me. And so a lot of times we were just, at least for me, I felt like as a very junior game designer with no experience, we were just kind of thrown onto teams and sort of told to like, figure it out, <laughs> you know, like, and, and you don't really even know what game mobile game design or free to play game design means at that time. I mean, it's 2011. There's not a, a lot of successful models and there's certainly not anything with five years of history that you can point to is like a, a proven product. So for me, it felt like a lot of trying to learn as much as I could on the fly, but also kind of needing to get approval from management layers above you and not, and like, I don't think anyone really knew what we were doing. Uh, a lot of the executives at the time were hired from EA because Zynga was growing very quickly and they wanted very experienced management. So just a lot of the general managers and other people hired were coming from EA. And um, yeah, I, I, not even, I don't even mean that in like a negative or disparaging way, but it was just sort of a, a console game company trying, you know, executives from a console game company trying to figure out mobile free to play in real time. And it was, uh, you know, <laughs> it was challenging and they had some hit games and a lot of things that were killed and, um, I was really only there for about two years, but I think it was a great place to start off in the game industry because you you see how big companies operate. You learn a lot of best practices that um, even though companies like Zynga and EA can be maybe maligned for being, I don't know, big or corporate or whatever, uh, it's I, I wouldn't have started anywhere else. Like I think I learned so much more in those first two years at Zynga than I would have working at like a small indie startup or something. Okay, good stuff. And so as a game designer, what tools do you prefer to use? What are like your favorite tools? Yeah. Um, well, obviously like the Google Docs suite, like I used mm -hmm. to be really big into Excel, but I've kind of moved over to Google Sheets because it's so much easier to, to collaborate with. But um, I actually really like this program called Balsamic Mockups, which is a, it's a really okay. simple mockups program. I feel like... Um, it's maybe not the most robust or most powerful mockups program, but it's very fast. It's a lot of drag and drop and easy to resize stuff. <laughs> one of the the like weird quirks of it is that they only have one font, which is Comic Sans, so that nobody can look at the mockups and think that they're final. It's like a little built-in quirk of the program that like nobody should look at these and be like, oh yeah, that's exactly what you meant as a final product because it's all it's all Comic Sans font. <laughs> but um it's really nice because not only can you build mockups, but it's very quick to link them together. And so I would sometimes, uh, you know, when we're developing a new progression feature or something like that, you could quickly make multiple screens, link them together, show people how the feature would work and walk through it. And I, I, I've found that to be a really useful tool. Um, 
I also use Photoshop quite a bit, um, mostly from my my time as being a YouTuber. I really leveled up my Photoshop skills during those those few years trying to make my own thumbnails. Um, so yeah, I think yeah, Photoshop, Excel, of, of course, the Google suite and stuff, and then for um, productivity software, we tend to use uh, Trello and Monday and Miro boards a lot. Miro boards are kind of warm. I'm warming up to Miro boards. I was sort of slow to adopt them at first, but the more I use them, the more the more I like them. Okay, I mean, I've I've heard of most of them. Some of them I haven't heard of. I'm going to check out those. Uh, so how's Monday.com? Because I've never used that before, but I have heard of it a lot. I've seen a lot of adverts for it. Yeah, we kind of tried it on a, a whim. Actually, I think... Um... Oh, so this is a quirk of Supercell is every game team is independent. So every game team tends to have their own tools and workflows and processes, and some are more formalized than others. When I joined Clash Quest, there was an art producer on the team who uh, was really a, a huge fan of Monday. So he like recommended we use the boards, and so we started doing that. And um, I find it to be a pretty robust tool. Monday, I think more than the other boards, requires a bit more setup. Like you kind of have to sit down with your team for a day or two and like plan out all the columns and the check boxes and what you're going to fill in. But once you get it set up, I find it to be a pretty good all-in-one tool. But honestly, because uh, Supercell tends to hire very senior people and we really prioritize like independent workers, um, a lot of teams get away with much simpler stuff like um, Trello boards and things like that are, are more than enough for most teams. But what's nice about Monday is that because it's so robust, you can use it both for um, internal work and also with outsourcers. And a lot of times with outsourcers, you have to be a, a quite a bit more um, specific and have a lot of dates and and make sure that things are getting checked up on regularly. So it's kind of nice to have one platform where you can use a really robust version for outsourcers and then um, a more streamlined or simple one just for your weekly team check-ins. Okay, yeah, Monday.com is definitely something I'm going to have a look at. I'm always, you know, looking to try and improve the process of planning, managing, and, you know, just keeping track of stuff. So, yeah, I'll definitely check that out. So what's the gaming community like in Finland? Because I know what it's like in the UK. That's where I am. I have a good idea what it's like in the US. And outside of Supercell, like, Finland doesn't come to mind when I think of gaming. So what's it like over there? That's interesting you say that, actually, because Helsinki, it, despite being a pretty small city, I think Helsinki has about 600,000 people in it. We have mm-hmm. a lot of gaming studios here. Like I think per capita, there's it might be one of the higher ones in Europe. Um, so Helsinki, just off the top of my head, has or has had recently um, Supercell, Rovio. There is a Zynga studio. There's an EA studio. Netflix acquired Next Games, which was a studio here. Also, Netflix is starting their own studio with their own talent. Um, there's Remedy, which makes the Alan Wake games and a few other a few other things. Seriously, the creator of Best Fiends is also here, as well as uh, a, a few startups and, and I'm sure companies I'm forgetting like Future Play, Metacore, the, the company that makes Merge Mansions, which is also a pretty big uh, puzzle game that's also here in Helsinki. So there's actually a pretty robust gaming industry in Helsinki, and um, it's not unusual when I meet people and and they say, you know, oh, where do you work or what do you do? I say, oh, yeah, I work in video games and 
your average Finn on the street will be like, yeah, yeah, we have a lot of video game companies here. Like, you know, they don't even jump to Supercell immediately. They just go, yeah, yeah, of course, there's a lot of, a lot of tech and gaming and things like that. Also, a uh, surprisingly high number of um, other tech companies here, spe- specifically around cybersecurity and things like that. So, um, yeah, pretty, pretty robust tech and gaming scene. For the average player, I was surprised to find out that Finland has a very big board gaming scene. So okay. I, I, I came from Los Angeles and Los Angeles doesn't, I, I mean, of course, Los Angeles is so big, you can find anything, but I found Los Angeles to be much more of like a Magic the Gathering kind of city, like a lot of MTG scenes all over the over the greater metro area. Um, when I moved to Finland, I don't think there's much of a Magic scene here. There is a Warhammer store, so I think there's at least, you know, an anchor for a lot of the tabletop war gaming that you might want to play but board games are everywhere like every bar you go into has several board games on the shelves and not like uh simple ones you know they they're it's pretty common to find relatively complicated or you know mid-core uh board games just hanging out on on a bar shelf and there's a lot of board game meetups board game cafes board game tournaments board game conventions like it's a it's a very big scene here and actually a couple of um kind of prominent uh board game developers have are are finished as well okay that's interesting fair enough so whilst we're on the topic of board games what's your favorite board game oh oh how much time do we got uh so (laughs) i'm sitting in my office right now and uh, across from me is my shelf of probably about 30 or 40 board games I have a limit, like I I can't buy more than a certain shelf amount. So I, my shelves are full. So if I want a new game, I have to sell old games and things like that to make space. Um, so favorite is a, a tricky one, but I would say two games that have stood out to me over the last few years that I've played um, many, many times and I'm still hungry to play more. Um, one is called Arc Nova, which is a two to four player game you might be familiar with a board game called Terraforming Mars. Um, I have Terra- heard of it, yes. Yeah, Terraforming Mars was like a top five rated board game for years and years. I think Arc Nova uh, improves on a lot of the systems and and is a sort of next generation successor, whatever, implementation to it with a very fun theme. You're building a zoo. You're collecting animals and building a zoo with them and all that. It's got a lot of different divergent strategies, a big deck of cards where all the cards are unique. It's very rare for the... Well, actually, it's pretty much impossible for two games to play out identically because of the amount of random components in it. Um, and it just feels really well-tuned, well-balanced, very nicely polished. It's a, it's a great game. Another game that's more in the, the medium difficulty, I would say, Arc Nova is definitely, I think, on the harder side. It's a very complicated game. Uh, a more medium difficulty game is called Lost Runes of Arnak. Which I, I got to say, board games have terrible names. Both of these names are <laughs> like not SEO friendly at all. But uh, Lost Runes of Arnak is a game where you are playing as explorers and you're trying to explore these ruins to collect different artifacts. And then the artifacts can be spent to earn victory points or uh, collect more cards that allow you to do more powerful actions. And um, it's got a mix of deck building and worker placement that I really enjoy. Um, but those are two games that have come out maybe in the last two or three years. I've probably played 100 games of Arnak, um, and I've probably played 20 or more games of Arc Nova, and I could still play those games anytime, anyplace. Okay. So it sounds like board games are a very important part of the Finnish culture. It, it, 
is that the case? Is it just like part of the culture and everyone does it? Like, because you said it's, they'll have ball games everywhere. So if you go to a bar or a pub, they'll have ball games there. And I'm guessing you see people constantly playing them as well. Yeah. Are you familiar with the term Euro game or like Euro board game? Uh, I'm going to say no. All right. This is. I, because it's a long form podcast and I like telling long winding grandpa Simpson stories that don't go anywhere. I could, this is a great opportunity to talk about this. So a kind of interesting development in board gaming is after world war two, America and let's say Germany were in very different cultural points. America was kind of riding high on, on winning the war. And there was a lot of glorification of the military and of combat and you started developing these very popular board games in the 1940s and 50s, like Risk, Axis and Allies, that were very much um, about you know playing a nation, conquering these other nations, rolling dice to resolve combat, destroying enemy armies, that sort of thing. Um, meanwhile, in Germany, there was this process of denazification where they were trying to, you know, culturally move Germany away from this um, militaristic, warlike society that had been kind of forced upon the the country by the Nazi party. And so there was a period in time where games were meant to be played with your family, but it was very, you know, verboten, I guess is the word, uh, to, to glorify the military or war combat games. So there was this, um, explosion of games that were around farming and agriculture, um, I wouldn't say cooperative games, but games where you could do your own little puzzle or build your own little farm with relatively minimal interaction with other players. Um, And at the end, whoever had the best farm or earned the most points would be the winner. Um, Which is very different, of course, from the American war games, which are highly interactive. Like every time you take a region and risk, that means you're taking it from another player. It's sort of this constant struggle for power and supremacy. And, in Germany and Northern Europe in general, um, the games that were becoming popular were much more like Catan, which you know really sparked the the renaissance of board games back in 1996 or 94 when it came out as this like very fun, exciting farming game. Um, yeah, so I don't, I can't say how much of that rubs off on Finland, but Finland and Germany definitely are like cousins culturally, like both Northern European countries. Um, I think, you know, Finns and Germans have like a similar reputation for like high quality stuff and no nonsense, you know, uh, culture and stuff. So I presume that a lot of that board gaming culture of sitting down with your family, you know, the mother, father, 2.5 kids sit down and play some four to five player family game together. And if you as a Finnish person in the seventies were sort of raised on this, then it's natural for you to play board games with your adult friends later on. Um, yeah. So I think it's, I, I don't know, like, for example, I don't think poker is very big here. I don't see like a culture of people playing poker nights, but it does seem like everybody has this memory of playing um, uh, African Tati, which is a really famous like Finnish board game as a kid. And then they would probably, you know, in university play it with their friends and all this other stuff. So, uh, yeah, I think I think there's a bit of a multi-generational board game culture that is just present like all these Finnish people just played board games when they were kids. So it's natural to have board games around as an adult. I mean, I like that because, you know, I'm a big fan of board games myself. It's, I mean, it's 
relatively um, big in the British culture, but it doesn't sound it sound like it's as big as that. And it does. It, it's a way of bringing, you know, like you're saying, people from different generations together, possibly even grandparents. You know, bringing three generations around a game that the grandparents would remember playing. The parents, when they were kids and obviously growing up with their own kids now, will remember playing. And now the kids are learning about those games and they're playing it. And unlike video games that, let's say, our parents may have played when they were kids that are totally different to, you know, the video games of today, you know, Pong and, you know, Space Invaders, totally different to, you know, the Uncharted's and the Clash of Clans and all these other games of the world, whereas somebody might have played Monopoly 50 years ago, 70 years ago, and they can still get their head around a board game today. So, yeah, that sort of unification between different generations is something pretty unique in terms of an interactive, you know, game with board games if you're not doing something physical like going outside playing football, which obviously isn't always practical. You might not want to as well. Yeah, and some of these games have really shown their longevity. I mean, the first board game that I bought is a game called Acquire, which I still have on my shelf. And Acquire was developed in like the 1960s, and it's still fun today. Uh, Diplomacy is a it's a war game or like a negotiation game um, that has been around, I want to say, since like the 50s. And they still have diplomacy tournaments that... The World Championship draws a lot of YouTube visitors, and there's articles written about it. Diplomacy is interesting because it's a game that John F. Kennedy and Henry Kissinger liked so much that they would play it with people at the White House. Like they would invite, uh, you know, foreign diplomats or whatever over and say, oh, you guys, you got to play this game with us. And they teach them the rules and then play diplomacy with them. And because diplomacy is all about real negotiations with other people, you kind of make these secret packs and deals and then you reveal uh, like all the armies on the board reveal their movement at the same time. So there's this element of surprise where, you know, you and I might have a deal to attack together, but when the moves are revealed, you have backstabbed me instead. Um, And uh, it was kind of interesting that they would use this game as a way to really suss out the diplomatic abilities of these actual diplomats that were brought <laughs> to their, uh, to the white house. You know, if they, if, if you couldn't keep a poker face while playing diplomacy, they sort of felt like, okay, well we can, we can get one over on these guys and the actual negotiations around the cold war or whatever, which is uh pretty interesting. Oh, uh, <clears throat> yeah, that's definitely interesting. So yeah, I mean, I agree. Board games definitely has a way of, it brings down the tension. I mean, unless you're playing something like Monopoly, which can get a bit, <laughs> a bit heavy sometimes. But it, it definitely brings down the tension a bit. And, you know, you can sit down, relax, especially because some board games can take a few hours. Mm-hmm. And it's a way of being able to interact with someone whilst... Because unlike a video game, which you have to concentrate more on, because most video games, uh, you know, you're playing with other people, you can't take a break and talk something else for two minutes you can't do that on call of duty you're going to get mm-hmm. killed uh, and then you're going to be at the bottom of the leaderboard whereas you could be playing monopoly for half an hour solid no talking and then you could sort of casually just be rolling the dice having a bit you know talking you know having some tea and, and then go back serious into it and and then it's something you can also leave and then come back the next day or a few hours later as well so yeah it's definitely a unique way of interacting in a game-like fashion. So 
Did you go to university? If so, what did you study and how relevant was it for the, you know, the job that you have now? Uh, yeah, so I, I actually started university as a film major. Um, my first kind of dream job was I wanted to be a movie director. Well, I wanted to be Quentin Tarantino is, is, <laughs> is the answer. I was, I was like 17 years old and I wanted to be Quentin Tarantino. So I uh, started at film school, but very quickly I just kind of discovered it wasn't right for me. Like I, I couldn't even in hindsight really put my finger on it, but I just felt out of place. And I switched over to uh, journalism, like English writing and journalism. I did that for a bit, and I and I liked being a reporter for the you know the school newspaper and stuff like that. But I um, eventually moved on to economics, which is kind of a weird pivot. But there was a book called Freakonomics that came out in I don't know two thousand four, two thousand six, or something like that, and it was a New York Times bestseller for you know years in a row, and it was just a lot of short stories and practical examples of, of economics in action. And I found it to be really interesting. Apparently a lot of people did in the years after that book was released, the number of undergraduate economics students shot up by like 40%, you know, like a huge lift and that can be attributed to this book. And I was in that group. So I, I pivoted from, from English to economics. Um, but I, I knew I didn't want to work at a bank or like a financial institution. Um, Again, so this was uh, my university, my undergraduate years were from 2005 to 2009. So kind of right in the middle of the financial crisis. And it was it just, I don't know, working in finance just didn't seem fun. It seemed in a way like predatory or something like it, obviously bankers didn't have the best reputation then or now, but it just, I just sort of felt like I like economics. I want to know how to use this in a, in a creative way. Um Towards the end of my undergraduate, I actually started looking at maybe going into sports management, uh, which is the degree or business, whatever, of running a sports franchise. Because I felt like maybe being in the front office of a sports uh, team, you know, being the person who deals with the contracts and which players do we draft and the team analytics and all that would be the closest thing to playing a game in real life for high stakes. You know, like how else do you play a game with millions of dollars on the line if not working for the NFL? Um, so I, <laughs> I started to do sports management. And again, instantly, I sort of felt out of place again. It was everyone in there um, was like a former sports player. Uh, I felt like, to be honest, like being candid, I felt like a dork. I felt like a nerd. I just, I just felt like a dweeb surrounded by jocks and I, I didn't like it. I felt, I don't know, uncool or unwelcome or something. And it but was, how were they in terms of being welcoming or not welcoming? Was it something that was more in, you know, your own mind or was there, was there actually some element of truth in there? It was, it was in my own mind. Like for okay. sure it was derived from insecurity. I think in practice, people weren't unwelcoming. They were just insular and stuck with the people they knew. So for example, the yeah, master's uh, degree for sports management at my large football state school had a lot of people who were like former walk-ons who were like, okay, well, I'm not going to be a pro football player. So maybe I'll go be a trainer or a coach or an agent or a front office guy or something. So they knew each other, right? And they might have known the female athletes who were also in the program for kind of the same reasons. Like, okay, well, it's fun to be a college volleyball player, but there's no there's no professional path on that. So what's my next move? Um, and so a lot of these people had just come from the athletic tracks. They knew each other. They were friends. And I felt like I was walking into a room of a bunch of people who were already in a clique. And I didn't know the terminology. Like I didn't, 
a lot of the stuff I would just embarrass myself because I didn't know like really basic terms because I didn't play sports in high school myself. I was like a, a late developer, so I was not you know big enough or muscly enough to play sports until I was like you know eighteen, and at that point it's too late. Um, yeah, so I was still interested in sports and I, I liked games a lot. And it was my mother of all people, like generally I think mothers are not credited with being supportive of video games, but she's like, you know, you've been playing video games your whole life. Why wouldn't, why wouldn't you do something in video games? Like, couldn't you work, do, do something in the video game industry? And you know, I, it's weird. I had never really considered it, but I grew up in Florida and Florida, um, doesn't really have, uh, an industry like that. Um, I mean, even today, there's really not that many game studios in Orlando or or Miami or anything like that. So growing up, I felt like all the adults that I saw were like working in real estate or or car, car dealerships or, you know, like uh, hospitality, things like that. I didn't know anyone whose dad or mom was like a computer programmer. So the idea of like working in tech was just so foreign to me compared to maybe somebody who grew up in Stanford, California, where everyone's a computer programmer or works in Silicon Valley or whatever. So um, I, I had this impression that to work in the game industry meant to be a programmer or a digital artist. Like there was basically only two jobs. And a game designer was sort of like a, a, a king who was crowned after proving that you were a good game programmer. You know, you'd be a programmer on this game for five years, and because you had all the good ideas, you got elevated from programmer to game designer. I didn't really think of it or understand that it was um, a discipline that could be learned separately from the technical implementation. So, uh, you know, I did like a five-minute Google search, and it turns out that you could be a game designer without being a programmer. I have no idea how I spent four years in college and didn't look this up. Um but it turned out that there was a master's program uh, within the state of Florida that was founded by former electronic arts employees. It was uh, in Orlando, which is right near EA Tiburon, which is where um, Madden and all the, a lot of the other EA sports came from. So uh, I was able to get into this program. There was a mixture of uh, designers, programmers, and artists. And they just paired us up in these multidiscipline teams and told us to start making game prototypes. And um, I, it's a, it was a one and a half year program, so about eighteen to twenty months straight through, no break or anything. Um, and that was a really, you know, kind of a fast track to learning game development because you're very quickly thrown in the mix. You have to learn how to use all these different uh, software suites. You have to learn how to work with people of different disciplines. You learn how to integrate other people's assets into a game engine, all that kind of stuff. Um, you do it over and over and over again in increasingly bigger teams for a year and a half. So I started in August of 2009. And by the time I graduated in December of 2010, um, I felt pretty ready for the game industry. And I, um, was applying to these different jobs. I actually, <laughs> I interviewed to be a game design intern at riot games when league of legends was still in beta. Like it was, it was a very, it was super, it was open beta. Uh, actually it's weird. Tom Cadwell, who's now their like VP of, you know, all design was the guy doing the interviews. And I did a few interviews and emails with him and obviously I didn't get hired, but, um, there is some alternate timeline where maybe I was at <laughs> Riot Games right from the start. Um, but uh, instead, I spent about six months at a small company in Orlando and then moved on to Zynga. And Zynga was sort of my first like real 
uh, full-time salaried game design job. Okay. That sounds good. So I know what you mean. When you get into the gaming industry or trying to, the first thing that comes to mind is programmer. Second is probably artist for me. And then everything else uh, next to that just, just doesn't come to mind. You don't think that, you know, you need sound engineers, yet, you know, every game virtually has sound. Literally, just uh, just the other day, I had a narrative designer from Obsidian Entertainment on the podcast, and she was talking about, you know, her journey, and she wasn't a programmer, and she did a, a she, I think she had a degree in English or something like that, and she, she had a, a lot of, she studied a lot of Latin as well, and that helped her you know, get the job in the gaming industry. So yeah, for anyone that is listening, you don't have to have a technical background. Obviously it can help if you do have it. And even if you don't want to go into the technical side, because you know, you can talk the lingo, but it's not necessary. And there are other degrees out there. If you do want to go down the university route of things. So what does Supercell look for in a game designer? I just want to piggyback on what you said about mm-hmm. uh, having any sort of background. I mean, even to this day, I am not a terribly technical mm-hmm. designer. I am. I didn't like become a programmer, and I totally agree. Like, I I wish actually I had known about all the different uh, types of roles in the gaming industry because I think it was it would have been possible for me with my economics degree to jump right into the game industry as a product manager or an analyst or a producer. Oh, I'm yes, really, sure. I'm really happy that I was able to go and kind of get a, an official game design degree, and I really like being a game designer. But I also think there's sort of an alternate path where I could have been working at Zynga two years earlier if I had just sort of, you know, had the thought to reach out to this Farmville company in 2009 and just be like, "Hey, I've got an economics degree. I really like your games. You know, <laughs> what can I do?" Um, so for what Supercell looks for in a game designer, uh, again, the game teams sort of run everything. And so it depends on what the needs of those individual game teams are. I would say at Supercell, the two major archetypes of game designers are um, gameplay programmers and Excel wizards. <laughs> so um, gameplay programmers are... Um, you know, like like it sounds like people who are programming the sort of minute to minute, second to second gameplay, because all of our games have, you know, troops and cards and brawlers. There is always uh, like characters that need to be made and their mechanics need to be developed. Uh, and so it, it really helps to have somebody who's a programmer, but with a, a a very good design sense. What's fun? What's easy to understand? How intuitive our players are how intuitively our players going to pick up what this character is supposed to do. And if you have somebody who both has a design instinct and can make it come to life, that's so much more efficient than having like two separate brains trying to do that. Um, and then the other side would be uh, like Excel wizards. So people who are really good with Microsoft Excel or Google sheets who do a lot of the progression and metagame design. So, you know, how many, how much gold do you get for winning a battle? How much gold do you get from the chests when you open? How much does it cost to level characters up? How many of the cards do you need to collect before you can level that card up? How much uh, does the <laughs> strength of a card go up every time you level it up? Right? All, all these things are something that requires um, somebody to own and that, and that falls on a game designer. Um, I would say I'm a bit of, of a 
kind of odd duck fit as a game designer because I'm more like half game designer and half community manager. Um, I've done a bit of gameplay design, a bit of balancing and a bit of progression design, but I think I function best at Supercell as sort of a second designer on a team uh, instead of as the primary designer for that reason. Okay. So what does Supercell look for when they're hiring their game designers? Like what's really important to them? Um, well, collaborate. I mean, so obviously we work in a team environment, so being very independent is important. Like you need to be able to understand what the team needs and independently work towards it. We would not want game designers who sort of need a boss to tell them what to do every single day. So being very self-directed, being able to prioritize your own work, see where there are gaps and like move independently to address them. Those are all like uh, cultural or personal values that we, we value very highly. Um, Obviously, being a fan of our other games or mobile gaming in general is something that is really useful. I'm I'm kind of shocked how how often, even in now in the year 2022, 2023, how common it is to meet game designers who are sort of proud that they don't play mobile or free-to-play games. Uh, it doesn't happen, you know, not at Supercell, doesn't happen all the time. But, um, you know, I, I go to GDC every so often or I talk to game designers at other meetups and there's definitely sometimes a um a sense of like oh i am a more pure game designer because i don't play mobile games or i don't play free-to-play games and uh so obviously like if you are passionate about that industry or those sort of games or you really enjoy mobile games then that helps a lot <laughs> to be a game designer for a mobile gaming company okay uh, oh yeah of course if you're you know it's like trying to, you know, work for a company and wanting to do programming there. Let's say if you're good at it, but then you say, oh, yeah, I hate programming. It's obviously not going to help. So obviously being passionate for gaming, be passionate for the type of games, not necessarily the games that the you know, company is making. Obviously that helps, but, you know, that genre of games. So Supercell you know, generates a lot of money from their games. How much does he put back into R&D? Like, what's their focus with the money they get? Yeah, I'm not a, like, I, I'm not a financials person, so I, I couldn't, I don't, like, even have the numbers on my computer. I'd have to probably look them up. But, I mean, obviously, we are constantly developing our existing live games. Um, there's teams or or full-time employees working on all of our globally launched games as, as well as multiple betas that we might have out at any given time um we always have a lot of new games in development uh, i've heard of some other companies recently put out like in their press releases or their their end of year analysis that they're halting new game development because they feel like maybe the mobile gaming market isn't um ripe for it or isn't a place where new games can grow but we're you know still investing in new games all the time new prototypes get start up spun down killed you know all the time um i i mean we don't spend a ton on marketing so i would say that probably compared to another game company we are investing in r&d development programming art you know new games expanding our live games i guess more than other game companies but i, I can't really say because of course i don't i don't have that that sort of viewpoint but um yeah new games all the time <laughs> new games all the time yeah i mean that's good stuff because you, you see plenty of companies that just either release their 
old titles again and again, you know, either through new version, you know, one, two, and three, or just, you know, like remasters. It, obviously, it's not really the case in mobile, um, but to actually be bringing out new games, having betas, is obviously a good thing. So, as Supercell, how many games, new IPs, would you say they have actively, do, you know, in development? Because you said they're like self-contained units. Sure, sure, yeah. Um, I mean, I don't think... Uh, not every game team forms with the idea that it will be a new IP, right? So there there are some prototypes that maybe don't have... Or, or have like a placeholder IP and that they either want to figure it out later or something like that. But like, for example, Everdale, which was a game we had in beta for about a year, year and a half and, and shut down last year. Um, there was a point in that game's development where they flirted with being a clash game. Like they thought like maybe this should be like a clash building a village, um, but ultimately decided to go with a new IP themselves, the, the Everdale kind of peaceful village Valley IP. So um you know, like I, 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 at any given time, we have some number of new games in development. Uh, some are using the existing IPs, like Clash Quest was obviously a, a beta game using the the Clash IP. We've also revealed a game called uh, Clash Heroes that is using the Clash IP, and very recently we did a um, beta test of a game called Squad Busters that uses all the IPs together. So it's Heyday and Brawl Stars and Clash all in the same kind of super smash brothers E crossover. Um, but certainly there are new games in development that are trying to explore their own art style and new IPs as well. So um, I don't know at any given time we have like, I don't know, a half dozen to 10 games in development, new games in development, depending on, you know, how far along you want to call it. And some of them reuse existing IPs and some have new IPs. Okay. So you've got a decade plus long career in gaming. Why did you go down the mobile route instead of, you know, console? And are you, you know, a, a gamer outside of mobile? Do you play many console and, you know, PC games as well? More traditional type of games? Yeah. Uh, well, one quirk about me, and I'll just I'll just lead with this because all my friends razz me about it, is I don't re- I don't really like single player games. Like never have. I just don't find them interesting. I don't I don't actually. I'll go I'll go further. I'll give you a hot take. I think games are actually a terrible medium for storytelling. And I know a lot of people say they're the best medium for storytelling, but at least in my experience, I've not found them to be like a, a, a compelling or intriguing vehicle for storytelling to me, at least in these kind of um, single player narrative driven games. Uh, you know, I, I would prefer a, a good a good HBO series over playing like um, a game that's primarily made up of linear storytelling paths or even divergent paths with different endings or whatever. I don't know. That maybe I'm weird. So I've always been a multiplayer gamer. I've always loved competitive games. And growing up, I was really big into tabletop games like Magic the Gathering and Warhammer. And in both of those uh worlds, the concept of I don't know microtransactions or people having different collections or not having access to certain things because you can't afford it was just part of the landscape. Like it wasn't I don't think it was good or bad to me. It just it just was what it was. I would go to Friday Night Magic with my deck, and sometimes you'd lose to people, and maybe you'd lose because they had spent more money, but often you just lost because you, you played worse than them. Um, and yeah, so when 
Facebook games came around and free-to-play games came around, I remember even in my early 20s being kind of off-put by all the the vitriol and the hostility towards it. People were like, oh, these games are predatory and awful and manipulative and you know, whatever. And I just remember being like, oh, this is just magic, <laughs> whatever. Like it's it's Warhammer. I don't know. It's like the this is just a, a, a dimension of the game that has always been there to me. So I don't think I specifically pursued mobile gaming, but I was interested in free to play games. I was interested in this thing that I thought had a lot of potential to be fun. And while everyone else was disgusted by it, I sort of saw an opportunity of like, oh, this would be a fun game to work in. And it seems like nobody else wants to do it. So, you know, what a great opportunity to get there. Um, and. I actually, when I joined Zynga, I thought I was going to be working on Facebook games. I had in my interview made a, like mock-ups and example features for the Facebook games. I wanted to show them like, you know, here's a thing you can do in Mafia Wars. Here's a thing you can do in Farmville. And I didn't really have any uh, concept of working in mobile games. But the way hiring worked at Zynga at the time was, again, they were hiring so quickly that it wasn't like a super thorough process. You would come in, you would interview with like five different departments. The departments would either give you a thumbs up or a thumbs down. They either wanted you or they didn't want you. And then if anyone wanted you, they would do like a stack ranking of like whose needs are the highest. Okay, Farmville has the highest needs. So you thumbed up this person, you get them. Next, you know, they'd go down the list. And so... um I guess the mobile gaming division, which was hiring a junior game designer, had an opening for a junior game designer. They had thumbs up to me as well as one of the Facebook games. And the mobile gaming division was at a higher priority to hire. So they got, you know, the priority over Farmville to get me instead of some other person. And that like very arbitrary, very lucky, like weird Hogwarts sorting hat decision had huge ripple effects because my, the first game that I was put on or one of the first games I was put on was words with friends, which is a huge game. Right. And just in six months of working with words with friends, I saw the scale of the mobile gaming industry, like how, how fast it was growing, how many people were playing. And when your first or second game that you're working on has like 10 million DAU, and nothing had 10 million like total sales, like you know, Tomb Raider wasn't selling 10 million copies, and yet we had 10 million people a day playing it. It just seemed silly to go back. It was like, this is where the players are. This is if you want to make something and the most people are going to enjoy it, you would be doing it in mobile games. And so I, yeah, like I started off interested in free to play, but then I ended up falling in love with mobile and then just staying, staying mobile from then on. Um, I did have a console at the time, but after I moved out of my university uh, grad school apartment, I sold my Xbox 360 and I have not owned a console since. Um, I'm still a PC gamer. I, I have a PC. I'm looking at it right now. <laughs> um, and But even on PC, I'm playing primarily uh, RTS games, MOBA games, like competitive multiplayer games that happen to just to be better with a mouse and a keyboard. Um, in 20... So I guess I would have sold, I guess I sold my Xbox 360 in 2010. So I just had a PC for a few years. In 2013, I actually made a New Year's resolution. It's the only New Year's resolution I've ever kept, which was to play mobile games for the entire year. Because I had been working in the mobile game industry for two years and I had this sense of like, all right, time to eat your own dog food, right? Like only play games that are mobile games or mobile, like mobile first games. Um 
for the entire year. And I was very fortunate because Hearthstone released that year. And I could, you could kind of tell Hearthstone was developed for mobile. Like maybe it wasn't on purpose, but I remember playing it and thinking like, this feels like a mobile game. So that was like my only thing I was allowed to play on PC was Hearthstone. And then everything else was played on my iPad. Um, So I got to play a lot of games that year and really get a sense of um, what the good and bad of the mobile game industry was. And I think, you know, from 2013 on, I was a primarily mobile gamer with a PC at home for sort of specific genres or specific games I couldn't play on mobile. Okay. So all this talk about, you know, mobile games and, you know, the free to play stuff, you know, segues nicely into my next question of a lot of games have become inundated with microtransactions and they've effectively become pay to win games. Many consider Clash of Clans and other Supercell games to be similar. What's your take on that? Um, I, you know, I, again, like I said, I, I from the very beginning of people complaining about free-to-play games, uh, it just didn't resonate with me. And, I, you know, I don't know if that makes me like a class trader or something like that, but I just, I don't know. It's never really bothered me that much. Um, even in games like Clash Royale, where having higher level cards, you know, can feel like a, like a punishing thing. Um, but I would say for games like Clash of Clans, I... I don't really see Clash of Clans as pay to win. I see it as pay to progress. Like you can you can pay to speed up your progression, but at any given point, you're playing people in the same trophy range as you. So even if I like if I started up a brand new account in Clash of Clans and I dumped ten thousand dollars into it on day one, I don't even know if you could do that. But like let's just say hypothetically I could, and I just mashed all the buttons and tried to get it uh, as high of a level as possible. Okay, sure, I'm gonna crush people for like. 20 battles in a row, but then I'm going to hit this trophy streak because I'm winning every battle, three crowning everyone with my super OP units that after those 20 battles, I'm kind of just back to playing other people who are at my level. You know, I, I paid up to town hall 13 and I crush a bunch of people, but then I'm right back to playing other town hall 13 people. So like, how can it be pay to win if I can't really guarantee to win any individual battle? And even if I do an extreme amount of progression, I, will normalize very quickly to playing people of the same same level and rank as me. So I feel the same way with Clash Royale. Um, you might occasionally play somebody with higher level cards, but they're worse players than you, right? Like there's a there's an ELO system, there's this trophy system that is there to counteract that. So um, the, the card levels function as sort of a handicap for skill and a, where a player is in their trophy journey is sort of a function of their skill combined with their card levels. Um, but I can't guarantee to win any single match of, of Clash Royale. You know, like when we go into a battle, if we're the same level cards or even if someone has higher level cards than me, there's no uh, money I can spend in the middle of the game to double my elixir production or heal my towers or do anything that like has a meaningful outcome on the result of that game. I just have to play the cards that I have. I can't I can't pay to switch out cards or change my deck in the middle of battle. Like there's so many pay to win things that could happen that just aren't there that I have a hard time calling it um pay to win in that way. Um but also as sort of a side tangent, what is like winning? Like win like what is what does it mean to win? Like cuz for example, Diablo Immortal was called a pay to win game and there were all these, you know, pearl clutching articles about how Diablo Immortal costs $100,000 to max out a character and that makes it pay to win. But it's like what does maxing out in Diablo even mean? Like there's 
so many like random generations of stats. There's so many items that you don't need every single item in the game. Like, what is it? Like, I don't know how they came up with that calculation, but it always just felt like a weird headline because Diablo doesn't seem like a game you win. You're just kind of constantly playing this character and trying to progress them and make them a little bit better. You're trying to find some item that's like a, a marginal improvement over an existing item that you have. So, like, what what is $100,000 buying and what 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 is winning in this context? Um even if you're at the at the top of some seasonal leaderboard, is that winning Diablo? I don't know. It doesn't feel like winning Diablo in the same way that uh, like a League of Legends team might win the world championship. Yeah, I know. I mean, that's fair enough. Like my like gripe with some games is that you know when I'm calling it play to win is let's say you have a few levels at the start. Uh, and you can or stages and you can easily or you can comfortably beat them but then it gets to a point where unless you're throwing money into it the amount of time it would take for you to grind is just, just so much it just feels like you're just doing the same thing again and again and again or you're gonna have to pay for it and obviously some people don't mind that i feel like you're on the mindset of like yeah that's fine as long as it's a fun you know, grind, as long as it's a fun process, whether you're mining something, collecting something, unlocking something. But, yeah, it, it really does depend on the, you know, the individual. Plus, it didn't help that a lot of the microtransactions that were in mobile that became popular in mobile made the way to console gaming. And you could literally, from day one, just purchase a bunch of guns mm -hmm. or purchase a bunch of, you know, armor in some of these FPS uh, shooters and your character could be just really good as long as long as you're okay at playing it you would just dominate whereas back in the day it was you had to actually earn that stuff and i still love it when games come out and you can't actually buy better weapons or better armor or not not even just that you can't even unlock it uh it, it's literally you just get given what you're given at the start of the match and everyone's given the same or, you know, randomly generated and that's it. So it's pure skill. So someone that's really good at it, but maybe hasn't played it in ages or never played it. Maybe they played all the other ones before it, for example, they can come in and still dominate. Uh, whereas somebody that's played it for a year doesn't necessarily have extra stuff. But again, it's different types of games and ultimately you know what you're going into. You just don't play that game if it's that much of an issue for you, I guess. Totally. And I think there are tons of valid criticisms of microtransactions, right? Like nobody loves a website that has four pop-ups on you. If you ever go to a website and there's like pop-up and pop-up and pop-up, you go, man, what kind of scammy virus website is this, right? So when mobile games do that, it feels bad. You know, you log into a game and right away, especially as a new player, you don't even know how the game works. They're throwing new player bundles at you and stuff like that. Like obviously that feels bad and, and low quality. And uh, yeah, I think you're right that some games don't have a very fun grind. So once you get to the point where the grinding itself is is miserable and you're like, man, the only thing to do is to pay, then it just feels like, yeah, this isn't a very fun game and, and it's time to, to kind of step away. Um, yeah, I mean, I think at Supercell, we we try to focus on making good games first and foremost, right? Like our, our two most recent globally launched games, Clash Royale and Brawl Stars, I would say the defining factors of those games are the really innovative, fun core gameplay. I don't think either of those games are like uh, 
revolutionary monetization, <laughs> you know, like I don't think that they invented some new way to spend money or anything. Um, the Clash Royale UI and the chest meta became pretty influential, but that the defining factors of both of those games is the really unique, fun core gameplay. And I think with a lot of the new games we're trying to put out like squad busters, that's the, the takeaway from them as well. Like they're trying to be a fun game to play first and foremost. And ideally they're, they're deep enough that you would want to play it a hundred times, a thousand times, 10,000 times like Clash Royale and still be, you know, intellectually challenging and interesting. Um, a lot of people do like the grind though. It's worth mentioning that for a lot of people, games are a hobby. They're not like they're meant to be something that you play for 10 minutes a day, every day. Only a certain subset of gamers are the ones who binge play a game for, you know, six to 10 hours a day until they're done with it. And if you're that sort of consumption pattern, if you're somebody like that, then a lot of free to play games are going to feel bad because you are hitting that daily wall so quickly. You know, a lot of the games are designed so that you play for 30 minutes, you complete all your daily quests, and that's the majority of your daily progression. You could play past 30 minutes, but the rewards you get for playing drop off significantly, and then that's what can feel really grindy. So if you're somebody who's like, my pattern of play is I load a game up and I play it for five hours in a row. Yeah, all these free-to-play games, whether mobile or console or, or on PC, kind of instantly feel like, well, after 30 minutes, it's telling me to stop and I want to keep going for 10 times longer. And it's just the games aren't really designed for that. But um, something that I do think is, is interesting about the criticism of free-to-play games and microtransactions is the very amorphous feeling of like pay-to-win. The words pay-to-win and the words free-to-play are used so loosely and so broadly that in some cases I feel like they cease to have meaning. Like free-to-play as a, a player, like, oh, I'm a free-to-play player. I did this free-to-play. I have seen people... Uh, like whole comments about it where it's like, well, I'm free to play other than a couple $5 bundles on the holidays. And I bought a battle pass every other month or so. And you kind of add it up and you're like, so you spent like $50 on this game. And they're like, yeah, but I'm, I'm free to play. Like I'm a, I'm, I'm a free to play player. And what they mean by that is like, I'm a moral gamer who does not spend enough money to gain a meaningful advantage. Not that they don't actually mean I've spent $0 on this game because they don't see a battle pass purchase or if there's a, a, a low cost holiday bundle that has really good value, they'll go, oh, well, I can't not buy this $5 bundle. It's so good. But they, they still don't, they don't feel morally bad about it. So they, they can still call themselves a free to play player, even though, of course, they spent money. Um, and I, I don't know. I don't know. Have you seen something similar to that? Have you, have you seen people say, like, oh, I'm free to play or I'm not pay to win, but then admit to spending like <laughs> over $20 on the game? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I've seen and heard that, you know, before loads of time. And I think it's also kind of, do you know how the gaming industry has a reputation for crunch. The, the you get every time I hear about the you know some sort of crunch happening with the gaming industry, it's always some triple A console game or PC game. I never hear about some mobile game. I'm sure it's in the mobile industry, I'm not saying that it isn't, but I'm always hearing about it, you know, at Rockstar or, you know, some big studios making a triple A title like that. And I I I wonder if it's kind of a way of them to absolve themselves of you know i play games but 
you know, I don't give it to the devil. I just give it to the fun, you know, the fun Finnish company that makes, you know, Clash of Clans or Clash Royale or whatever. I wonder if there's an element of that to, to it to kind of, you know, almost say, you know, I don't do that because we're funding bad people almost or that, you know, gaming is, you know, kind of a nerdy thing but you know I, i'm not really a gamer gamer but i just play a few free-to-play games and i just swipe on my phone whilst i'm on the train for example i think there's an element of that as well they they kind of don't want to admit the gamers but they kind of want a game and this is a way of doing it without spending too much time on it and almost revealing it to the people that they care about yeah, maybe. I, I don't think that consumers as a whole do that much uh, moralizing over the the developer's behavior, right? Like, I mean, and this is true of any creative industry. There are tons of musicians who are awful people who sell lots of albums and pe- the, the consumer just cares that the music is good and you kind of have to push on them to be like, hey, this person's bad. You probably don't want to support them. Um you know, there are a lot of very successful game companies that have gone through scandals of crunch and sexual harassment and discrimination, and they're all still very successful game companies, right? So, like, I yeah. don't think there's really any mass movement to, like, sp- spend your dollars morally on the consumer side. And, and uh, you know, in a way, I don't think we should expect consumers who have a lot going on in their life um, to investigate the, you know, behind the scenes intrigue of all these different game companies. That's something that I think is very specific to like hardcore gamers on Reddit and other communities where knowing the inside of the game industry is sort of the social proof of those communities. Um, But I do think that players um, for a lot of people, games are a proxy for intelligence, right? Like, we don't live in a society where the average job really rewards you for being super clever or creative or intelligent, right? A lot of people are working just like menial jobs. There's nothing wrong with those jobs, but I think that they're not intellectually challenged. So what happens is, as you go home and the games you play are meant to be that battlefield where you use your smarts, your wits, your cleverness, your reaction time to to master something and feel like yes, this was this was challenging and, and satisfying. So you want to win a puzzle game because you're smart at puzzles. You don't want to win a puzzle game because you fed a, a dollar into the machine, right? But this cognitive dissonance has to coexist side by side with the fact that you care about these games. And, and like anything you care about, when there's some really good value or discount or sale, you're compelled to buy it. So you as a player, and I think, again, we all do this with, with all sorts of things, right? Like you find this balance of, I spend money on something I really care about, but the thing I spent money on doesn't actually take away from my own skill or my intellectual satisfaction with this process. Like I buy better basketball shoes because I, because I like basketball, I care about it. It's something that I, I want to invest my money into, but I would never say like, oh, I hit that three point shot because I'm wearing Curry shoes. Right. Like you might say, oh, it helps me run a little better, helps me jump a little higher, whatever. But I would never be like, oh, I would have totally missed that shot if it wasn't for the shoes that I spent a lot of money on. And same thing with golf, right? Like you buy good golf clubs because you think it makes it better. But when you do something good, when you hit that good shot, you don't go like, ah, I'm a total idiot. I would have completely whiffed it if I had a, a normal club. You just sort of have to coexist with like you want good materials or good 
uh, tools for the things that you love, but you yourself are still the one responsible for the outcome. And so I think that's where that discourse comes from is I play this game every day. I love the game. I want to get better at it. I want to have more cards and more decks. So when I see some $5 bundle with really good value and a cool tower skin that I want, I'm going to buy it, but I still need to like, I am still a free to play player because free to play players are quote unquote moral. And, and, you know, still, uh, when I win a game, it's, a it's an expression of my intelligence and problem solving and not just my ability to spend money on the game. Yeah, I think there's definitely an element of that as well. So how often do you purchase microtransactions in games? Um, it depends on the game. I mean, I, I definitely need something in the game to be interesting to me for me to buy it. So something I've actually been struggling with is I love teamfight tactics. I, I, it's such a great game, like hats off to the team at Riot because Teamfight Tactics is one of the most interesting, compelling, deeply strategic games I've ever played in my entire life. However, the only thing you can really buy in that game is uh, cosmetics. And the only real cosmetics are sort of like the uh, the appearance of your avatar and the sort of animations associated with your avatar. Well, I like the ones I have. I, I got some for free just from the battle passes and stuff. And I like how my character looks. I like the animations. I don't feel like a pressing need to buy any more cosmetics. And so I don't really spend money on the game, but I wish I could like, I, you know, I mean, I wish there was something that I wanted to spend money on in the game because I, I played all the time <laughs> and, and because I play that game the most and yet I don't really spend any money on it. I feel kind of bad that I'm getting all this like high quality gaming for free. And I don't really have like a meaningful way to give back to the game developers. Um, but another game, sometimes, especially deck building games, card games, I'm a huge sucker for wanting to build all the different decks or different strategies. So, you know, when I started playing Hearthstone or Clash Royale or Magic, uh, Magic the Gathering Arena, I would start cracking open booster packs right away because I wanted to be able to play two, three, four different decks. Um, I've spent money on Marvel Snap as well. Kind of the same thing. I buy their Battle Pass because I want the, the new cards that are exclusive to the Battle Pass. I want more... Uh, money so I can upgrade my or more uh, gold or whatever in the game so I can buy more variants, which allows me to upgrade more cards, which allows me to build more decks, you know? Um, yeah. So I would say the things that get me to spend money are definitely, uh, like content cards, different characters, figures and stuff. I'm not much of a cosmetic spender, which then, you know, all these games that rely heavily on cosmetics, I play them, but I, I can't really be motivated to, to buy anything in them. Okay. And as a Supercell employee, do you get discounts on the transact microtransactions for Supercell games? Is there some sort of reward system or something like that? Absolutely not. And actually, it's <laughs> really good that we don't. And credit to actually every mobile game company I've ever worked at has had the same policy. Zynga, Scopely, et cetera. Employees do not get free gems. And I think that's really important because how could you as a developer understand the true value of any of the purchases in the store, unless you had to buy them yourself. Like if I got it for free, of course I think this $50 bundle is a good value. I didn't pay for it. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's the same thing that it's kind of hard to trust like sponsored Amazon reviews or sponsored, you know, YouTube video video reviews. They're like, Oh yeah, if I had to pay for it, of course I would buy this $800 desk. 
Well, yeah, because you didn't have to. <laughs> like, yeah, of course, <laughs> of course, it makes sense that you'd think you'd pay for it when you got it for free and you don't actually have to. But the struggle that most people have is that moment of actually making the purchase. So, um, yeah, no, no free gems, no discounts or anything like that. Um, we spend the same amount of money as any other player, often more because we're in Europe and European prices tend to be a bit higher than U.S. prices. Um, but yeah, uh, I have spent uh, all of my own money in Clash of Clans, Clash Royale, Brawl Stars, and and actually, uh, I think on Clash Quest, I did actually get a refund of my stuff. Like when we shut down Clash Quest, I had like $20 and I transferred that money over to Clash Royale. So even even as a player, I wanted my my money back. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, I mean, I know what you mean because it would be it wouldn't look the best if they was giving free stuff because it's different. If let's say it's a single player game, even a single player mobile game, let's say Angry Birds, and you know, let's say the original Angry Birds that had no type of microtransactions at all, the or you know, some sort of console game, that's different because the individual getting it doesn't have an advantage over other gamers because it's not a competitive game. Whereas something like Clash of Clans, Clash Royale, you could, for example, if they gave everyone on launch that worked on the game or worked at Supercell 10,000 gems and maybe 10,000 gems would cost a thousand dollars, that would literally give them a huge advantage over you know, most gamers out there, one, because they're probably not going to spend $1,000 on it, two, they're probably not going to spend it, if they are, within 24 hours. So, yeah, it, it is good that they don't, but do employees that you have worked with in the past or currently want that and they feel like that they should get it? Uh, no, I've never heard anyone... Like have that be their personal crusade. There's always like a tongue in cheek joke. And I'm positive that this happens at every single game studio ever that when you make like a $5 purchase, you sort of make like a, a joke to your coworker of like, well, you know, it's, it's going to come back to me in the end, you know, like the fraction of the, the pennies of this purchase that come back to me and my salary in the end of it. So, um, <laughs> it's always our tongue in cheek joke. Like, oh, don't worry. We're just making the money go in circles. I'm just getting it right back. Even though of course, you know, <laughs> it's only a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you, you spoke about single player games. I know you're not the biggest fan of them. Do you think the single player gaming industry is dead? It feels like it's dying to me. I, I'm the wrong person to ask. It'd be, it'd be like asking me if country music is dying. Like, I don't know. It's been dead <laughs> since I was seven years old. I have no idea. Right? Like, I, I don't know. Uh, actually, I, um, I will I will say that I'm very excited for Starfield. Um, I don't know mm. particularly why this game has caught my attention, but I'm a big sucker for like outer space and space exploration stuff. I had been meaning to play No Man's Sky. I just built a new computer not too long ago, so I have like this backlog of games that I should go back and try and, and play around with. And No Man's you want to push that rig to the max? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, Diablo Four coming out and than Starfield. Now Diablo 4 I guess is multiplayer, but it's not really competitive, right? It's like going to be co-op. Well, maybe it'll have PVP, but primarily Diablo is a cooperative experience, so I'm looking forward to that. And for whatever reason Starfield has caught my eye, so I'm actually hoping to maybe like do some upgrades onto my computer right before it comes out so I can play Starfield on like ultra wide photorealistic mode or whatever <laughs> whatever I can do, but um yeah, it's it's hard for me to say if the industry is dying or not, but I do think that the an issue is that 
gamers have higher and higher expectations for the graphical quality, for the length, for the complexity of the story, but I have not seen the industry adjust in pricing to make it, it worthwhile. So for, for example, in like 1996, GoldenEye costs like $50 or something or $70 or whatever, depending on how much it was where you were buying it from. And in if you keep up with inflation, that's like 120 bucks today or something like that. It's a lot for like the base model of, of a game. GoldenEye was made with like 11 people in nine months or 18 months or something like that. So when you have 400 people working on Assassin's Creed for four years, and then it comes out and gamers still just want to pay $60 for it. It's like, woof, like I feel bad for that industry because the amount of people needed is going up. The amount of time needed is going up, but I haven't seen the, the value, the price go up to make, to make it make sense. Like perhaps if these big single player games cost $250 and people were willing to spend $250. If it was $250 and people were willing to pay it, then there wouldn't be microtransactions in this game and there wouldn't be crunch in the, in the game industry or there'd be a lot less of it, but it's kind of the crunch and this forced microtransactions is sort of a function of people want 400 developer games that have been developed for four years, but they still want to spend, uh, 1996 11 person and nine month prices for it so like i don't know luckily i don't work in like an industry that has to make sense of this formula but you know when i hear struggles coming from the AAA industry it kind of always comes back to that formula like people don't want to pay a hundred dollars for cyberpunk even though cyberpunk's probably worth more than a hundred dollars no yeah for sure it's yeah, I know what you mean because I remember when games when games were so in the UK console games were thirty quid or thirty five quid roughly, and that was in the PS2 era. But a PC game because PC games are traditionally cheaper. I remember that was sub thirty, they were like twenty five pounds. And I, I remember when they PC games went above the thirty pound mark. I was like, oh my god, they're going above thirty. And then you know, console gaming, you know, games went to about forty. That was round about that PS3 era. We still some below the forty pound mark. And then PS4 era, every every you know big game was forty pound or more. Mm-hmm. And now with PS5, you've got games that are seventy pounds base and then 60 to 70 easily you, like a new you know harry potter game if you're buying the recommended retail price and not some discount which you can usually get but if you look at regular price call of duty those sort of ones you're paying a fair bit of money but yeah you're right because of inflation and the problem is yes inflation has gone up but because people's salaries haven't kept up uh, and they've got less money but they still want to play these big games they they struggle to warrant paying more. It's it, it's like consoles. I remember seeing a breakdown of console prices, and even though they had gone up, once you factored in inflation, consoles from about twenty or thirty ye- years ago were over a thousand dollars. Oh yeah, so significantly yeah. more than consoles cost today. Yeah, when Microsoft announced Xbox One. And I think it was announced that what four hundred and fifty dollars. I want to say, you watched that E three conference. Phil Spencer was getting booed on stage, and even though it was 
cheaper than consoles that they probably bought 20 years ago. It's just because, you know, the number value for starters is obviously higher. And two, the salaries haven't kept up. So yeah, it is harder for them to warrant. And I think as a result, you've got the mobile gaming industry that's come in and that's been like, you know what? You can have a free game. Yeah, you're going to have a better experience if you pay, but you can. there's so many games out there that are free from Supercell, from indie you know, developers, and you can have a great time. And basically, if you just want to, let's say, numb yourself or just get into some world and not have to think about the real world, you can do that with mobile with little to no money. On top of that, with a device you already have. Like everyone now has a mobile phone and many people have tablets, but it is still an active choice to say, I'm going to buy the new PlayStation. I'm going to buy the new Xbox. So all of that definitely has a part to play in the console industry with the prices and with the type of games that are coming out. And you're actually tapping into something that I think is really revolutionary about free-to-play games is it's it's I don't think people understand how inaccessible gaming was in mm. the 1980s. Like when you see these old ads for Macintosh computers from the 1980, whatever, they're like, oh, get the new Macintosh computer. It's $5,000. And you go, $5,000 in 1984? Like what are you doing now? Yeah, like, I mean, who's gonna buy a computer for f- even two thousand dollars? Like for most, um, let's say Americans, that would they probably don't even have. Like I've seen, I'm sure you've seen those studies that show that the average American ha- has what X, what a thousand or a few hundred dollars in their bank account at any given time, and they can't afford a major expense. So, like f- for you to say, oh, you, you know, spend five six hundred dollars on this console or more even and then on top of that you've got to spend 50 60 70 dollars per game you may not like it that is one thing i do like about free to play is that you could play it you could utterly hate it spend no money and be like okay i wasted what an hour but that's it i haven't wasted you know four or five hours worth of working time mm-hmm. on buying this game and then obviously the time that you know the money that you've spent on the console but you can try that with a bunch of games and be like okay at these 10 i like these two a lot i'm gonna play these and absolutely, I mean, I, I, this accessibility thing plays a huge role and maybe part of the reason why I was open to free-to-play games personally is that when I was a kid, uh, my family was very poor. Like we did not, like I, my parents did a really good job of making sure that like they spent money on me as a kid. They weren't like depriving us of joy, but the idea that we would just like buy a new game every week or whatever was completely absurd. So like I remember uh, when the Sega Saturn and the PlayStation 1 first came out, I said I wanted a PlayStation for Christmas. And my dad was like, look, I can afford the console, but not any games. And so what happened was uh, by the holiday season, you could buy the PlayStation for like $399 or $299, whatever. I don't remember the price was, but the, the PlayStation was like $399. And then the Sega Saturn was also $399, but it came with three games and a CD of demos, like an extra came packaged with like a CD that had a bunch of- I remember those demo discs. Demo discs, (laughs) right, okay. And so my dad was like, all right, we're gonna get you, I'm gonna get the Sega Saturn. Like, because of course he doesn't really know the difference between the platforms. What he Mm -hmm. does know is that for the same price, you get three more games. And if you've got three games, you don't need any more. So like the entire time that I had the Sega Saturn for years, we just played Daytona USA, Major League Baseball, fucking home run derby. And like, what well, I remember what the other uh, virtual fighter, virtual fighter uh, was like the three games. That's all we had. And so 
you know, the culture of gaming, especially in the 90s, and, and when people talk about the heyday of gaming, whatever, you can't help but sense a lot of privilege in their experience because, yeah, if you're like an upper middle class kid and you can get a new game every month as part of your monthly allowance or whatever, then, yeah, like go buy Final Fantasy, play it until it's done, throw it out, play the next game. But like for the entire time that I had a Sega Saturn and then an N64, I never had more than like three or five games. And so mm. you these games really had to have a, long, a lot of longevity and you really couldn't gamble on a new game. Like if I was going to get one new game a year, it was a big deal. And if I got suckered into marketing and bought like Superman 64, it would have been the, it would have ruined it. It would have like, I would have been so sad and it's going to make my mom less likely to want to like buy more games. Cause Oh God, I saved up all year and I got you Superman 64 and it was terrible. Right. And you're not playing it anymore. Cause it's not like it's terrible and you're going to keep playing it. Cause then your mom will be like, okay, he's, you know, little, you know, little Seth is playing it. So he clearly likes it. You're obviously going to put that aside and play virtual fighter or, you know, the games that you like. Yeah. I mean the game probably to this day that has the most like total hours spent on it is either smash brothers on the GameCube or, uh, W was it? What was the N64 one? WWF No Mercy. Uh, I, I it was the sequel. Like they had a WCW game right when the N64 launched, but I was a WWF fan, and so when they came out with the sequel, it was they had switched labels. And I played WWF No Mercy with my buddies. They had four player mode. We'd go over to my house every day after school, and we played four player WWF No Mercy. I mean, for hours every day for like two years, and so like games that had replayability that had multiplayer those were so much more valuable to me than like a, a single player game that you could play and throw away um that when i got into free-to-play gaming one of the first things that as a designer that was interesting to me was how many people you'd see playing online from third world countries or from places that just didn't have like a traditional gaming scene for a lot of people clash of clans clash royale and brawl stars and stuff are like the premium gaming experience that they can access. They, they, they're familiar with games like Cyberpunk, but there are tons of countries where like nobody has a really high powerful PC, like whether for space or console, reasons or cost yeah. reasons or consoles. Yeah, like maybe someone has them, but it's not like a thing where everyone at school has an Xbox at home and you all go home and play your copies yeah. of Cyberpunk and then talk about Well, not about the it latest day. one as well. Like, So sorry to cut you off. I remember... Um, I was selling some PS5s, you know, for profit, of course. And a guy came around to, well, no, a guy that I know, he has a market store that sells games. And where I live, he, because I don't live near him anymore, he's a bit too far because he doesn't drive. So he sent a friend round that was going to be near the area to be collecting a bunch of other consoles. And when I was talking to him, he buys old consoles like PS3, uh, 360, and some PS4 one, but mainly PS3 and 360. And what he does is he opens them up, cleans them all out. Uh, and he, if any new soldering needs to be applied, he does that. So they're like, like brand new, uh, you know, in the, and they'll last for a while. And you do any modifications, you know, chip them or software hacks that he needs to do. And you'll send them over to countries like Afghanistan and Iraq because they are still playing these older consoles. One, because the other consoles are just too expensive and two because they can be modified mm -hmm. they would prefer these older ones because they can just buy the console once and then either get the game for free because they'll pirate them or get them really cheap because people that sell them pirated instead of selling them for 70 dollars and that's excluding any import charges they'll sell it for maybe 10 dollars or less mm -hmm. 
So, yeah, the barrier to entry, especially for world third world countries, it is, you know, it's, it's very difficult for them. And I remember when, because my family is from Pakistan, when I used to go there as a kid, if there was someone that had a console, they were never the average person. They were always from a rich family. Mm-hmm. Like, it was, like, a huge deal for them. I remember it was like going to it was like you, you yeah. would like go over to look at the PlayStation Five at this guy's house. Like it was uh, exactly yeah. over in in those countries. And obviously here, you know, being born here and being raised here is a little different. Whereas you know everyone had an Xbox. You know, it was a few that didn't have the new Xbox, given like a year or so. But over there in those federal countries, only the rich people had it, and only the rich people went to places like Pizza Hut, which are just everyday places in the UK. Mm-hmm. I remember I went to Pizza Hut once in Pakistan and everyone there like the type of people that went there was doctors with their families lawyers with their families engineers with their families it was an actual almost like an event uh you know it's like an actual experience to go there whereas you go peter in the uk you've got people that probably you know have a few are in negative balance (laughs) you know on their bank account and they're going there so yeah definitely the accessibility for mobile games has provided the ability for people to you know just be part of gaming if they couldn't before and some regions have gone straight to mobile first right like there are Mm. several countries uh, on several different continents that just like didn't quite have um you know fiber optic or, or or phone line infrastructure thoroughly built and what happened is just they just went straight to mobile technology um and so you know for those uh regions m- mobile gaming is the first time they've been able to play the same top quality games as everyone else like that's something that i i know the clash of clans team really prides themselves on is that there are great clash of clans players all over the world and for some of these people it was like their first real game that they played um, and they have grown to master it just alongside people who have been playing games on consoles since the 1970s. And so that's like a, a really cool experience to see the entire world come together and get to experience this thing uh, all at once. And I actually, I think League of Legends has sort of reached that level of cultural touch point because League of Legends can run on anything. You can run League of Legends on like a smart mm-hmm. fridge at this point because they've optimized it so much. So even if you're have a, a really old PC or a laptop that's been like refurbished and junked and you've got it secondhand or whatever, you can still download League of Legends for free from the official website and be playing on the same servers as everyone else, probably with like a similar performance. As I mean, when I when I play on my computer, I run Teamfight Tactics at like 300 FPS. <laughs> just because like, it just goes for whatever, right? Um, so certainly if you had some refurbished 2008 laptop, you could still play League of Legends. Like, alongside anyone else with basically no lag and that's that's awesome that's something that not a lot of games can claim oh yeah for sure i mean games like cyberpunk and you know witcher and even call of duty they they just can't you know say that because computers still can't run these games like there are people with 4090s who are like i try to turn up all the features on cyberpunk and it doesn't work and you're like what do you mean that game came out like two years ago (laughs) i know yeah it's it's just ridiculous and as a result there'll be people out there you know around i I mean even in the western world in the uk and us if they don't have a console and let's say they got a pc but the pc is not that beefy they'll probably stay away from some of these crazy ass games 
like Cyberpunk, because they're like, you know, my graphics card just can't handle it, my CPU just can't handle it, but, you know, like I said, I can play League of Legends on it, I can play Minecraft on it, I can play, you know, some of these other games that are still not mobile, but they are still accessible to me. And Minecraft, of course, like a lot of these games have a mobile version as well now. The, like, yes, exactly. So, does Supercell have any plans for a console game? Uh, I'm imagining Clash of Clans, but more RTS-based and on a bigger scale. Uh, yeah, uh, I mean, all the individual game teams make their own decisions for that kind of stuff. Uh, certainly, we've floated the idea of multi-platform stuff before, but I don't, you know, I can't say if anything's like specifically in the works for that. But I know that like um, games like Clash of Clans and Clash Royale are pretty commonly used with PC emulators and we don't officially support mm. PC emulators, but that is a really common way for people to play. And when you see games like Marvel Snap, which was developed mobile first, but has an official Steam client, I think there's a lot of cool stuff there. And I think, you know, it can't hurt to be on more platforms, but our our game engine was developed um, as a mobile first game engine, right? So it there's like work to do if we wanted to make those multi-platform, but also uh, there could be new games in development that just use like unity from the start. And then it's a little easier to export onto to multiple platforms. Okay. Fair enough. And so how much gaming do you do yourself these days? And as a part of your job, do you play games to get new ideas? Oh yeah, of course. I mean, again, I wouldn't trust anyone who says I'm a game designer, but I don't play other games because I, <laughs> I don't want to be, I don't want to see their ideas. Like that, that seems weird to me. Um, I mean, I, I play games every day of my life. You know, there's not a day that goes by that I'm not playing a game of, of some sort or another. I normally have about uh, two to three games on my phone that I rotate between and I'll, I'll like obsess over a game for a while and then I'll, I'll put it away. One game that like I really got into for a while was called Hunt Royale and it's like a, four player pv competitive pve games you're trying to like farm the most creeps in a three minute time period um with kind of arch hero uh roguelike mechanics um yeah uh i'll play about two to three games on my on my phone i normally have about one pc game at a time and i'll come home and maybe from eight to ten uh so like after dinner until it's bedtime i'll play whatever that game is like i said most recently it's been team fight tactics um, but it's also been, you know, other strategy games, MOBA games, MMOs, things like that. Um, in terms of playing for ideas, I kind of ebb and flow. Like right now, working with primarily YouTubers and, and content creators, I'm actually watching a lot more YouTube and content than I than I have in the past. When I'm working on games, especially if I have the opportunity to prototype a new game, um, I'll play a ton of mobile games. I'll download like 20 different things off the app store, play them for like 30 minutes each just to see if there's anything different. And if there's something innovative and different, then I'll, I'll stick with it for a bit longer. Um, unfortunately, a lot of mobile games are kind of samey in a way. Like sometimes you'll download five games and they're all kind of like game of war clones. And so you, you play them and after about 15 minutes you go, okay, I get it. This is like game of war reskinned with a different IP. And then you open the next game and you go, ah, it's the same thing. <laughs> and it's it's kind of hard to find the differentiating factor. But um, there's still lots of innovation in the mobile game industry. There's lots of fun new games coming out all the time. Um, some are financial successes, some aren't. But I find the mobile gaming industry to still be a place that has a lot of potential. There's a lot of really cool new stuff that could be 
done. And that's part of the reason I'm really optimistic about Supercell for the long term is that we are still trying to innovate. We're still trying to develop new and exciting mobile games all the time. And when I see these other hit mobile games, I go, ah, should have thought of that. Like a great example is Fall Guys. Fall Guys is so good. Like what a fun game. And in a way, it's so simple. Like everyone who played Fall Guys probably had this like, ah, how did I not think of this moment while playing it? Same thing with Among Us. Um, all these battle Royale games and all the, the innovations and twists we see on battle Royale, like all the time I play games and I go, this is so good. Why didn't I think of this? And that's really inspiring for, you know, future game development. Okay. Oh yeah. Four guides. Definitely. It's, it is definitely one of those games that you play and it's intense, but it's a fun intensity and it's just fun. It, it, you don't get game and if it, it feels mobile mobile like but on console and you don't get that very often and it, it, and it helped it's free <laughs> yeah so what's your biggest regret in your journey as a designer and what advice would you give to others looking to become game designers uh learn to program <laughs> <laughs> Uh, if I could go back and do it again, I definitely would prefer if I knew uh, programming. Okay. So well, the- well, I'm sorry. One, one second. Uh, my, I'm getting that echo again. So we might have to edit this out. I'm trying to turn it off. Uh, can you hear me now? Yes. Okay. So I don't know what happened, but the my screen kind of blinked for a second and then I got the echo again. I had to go turn the setting off. Okay. I'm sorry. Can you re-ask the question and we'll, we'll pick it up from here. Yes. I was just asking, what's your biggest regrets in your journey as becoming a game designer? And what advice would you give to others looking to break into the gaming industry as a designer? Yeah. Um, I would say as a designer, the biggest advice I could give is to try a lot of different things in your life. Like I, the art of game design is creating authentic feeling experiences from artificial numbers, right? Like nobody in this world has ever fought a dragon. Nobody knows what fighting a dragon feels like, but you need to create an authentic experience that really feels like fighting a dragon that is believable to the end user. And since you're creating experiences, you kind of need to know what these experiences feel like firsthand. So like, Um, if you're somebody who just stays inside all day and reads Reddit and never like touches grass, right. Then like, how could you possibly know what some of these experiences feel like? So as corny as it sounds like, I feel like I've benefited a lot by, um, driving fast cars and shooting guns in real life and writing, uh, being like a journalist and, and, going on dates and things like that. Like, how could you make a dating simulator if you've never been on a date? if that makes sense, you know? So try to live a full and robust life with a lot of different varied experiences. I would say as a game designer, it actually does not benefit you to be too specialized in life. Learn how to play a musical instrument, learn how to dance, you know, like try try to do a little bit of everything because all of these things will somehow come back to you in your professional life. You'll like like that um, narrative designer you mentioned earlier, learning Latin was not something that they did 
to become a narrative designer. But once you become no. a narrative designer, you go, wow, this is so useful to me in some some weird way that I could have never predicted. Steve Jobs always credits taking calligraphy classes as being super influential on Apple. He just, for whatever reason, took like a semester of calligraphy and his love of calligraphy is what led to the Macintosh having fonts and things like that. And so that's like these really breakthrough thoughts, I think, come from real life experience. And I, and I would not um, respect a game designer who had like never left their house, you know, or hadn't really yeah. lived like a full life in, in terms of my biggest mistakes. The easiest thing is all personal interactions. Like I'm a very headstrong individual. I'm very opinionated. I can come off like a dick often <laughs> I would say. And so all of my biggest regrets usually come from the people management side. Maybe I was rude to somebody I shouldn't have been rude to, or I, uh, when I had a problem with someone, instead of just going to talk to them, I like made them a villain in my own head and created, you know, like made drama where there didn't need to be drama. Um, so if I could kind of go back and relive my career over again, I think I would try to be a lot more emotionally intelligent. I'd try to read the room a little better or understand where other people are coming from instead of jumping to conclusions. Um, I mean, I obviously I've made like numbers mistakes in my career. Like I have done a poor job balancing a certain card on clash Royale, but I also see that as part of the process. Like nobody bats a thousand in their game career. Like everyone has shipped a bad thing or missed a bug or, or unbalanced a card or something like that. So I don't, necessarily see that as like a huge regret or a mistake. Like obviously it could have been done better, but the things that really stick with me and keep me up at night or things I think about in the shower and go, Oh God, how did I do that? Are almost entirely um, interpersonal decisions. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I totally agree when you're talking about, you know, you need to experience different things. The thing is most people just want to see an obvious you know, connection. And again, you know, quoting Steve Jobs, you know, he has the quote, you know, looking forward you can't see where you know the dots all connect but looking backwards you can see you know obviously i'm butchering the quote a bit but you can see where everything lines up you can see how it all links together so you know read you know watch videos go out and experience stuff you know you know go on holiday a little bit if you're you know able to you know go out with friends you know try different board games like if you're into video games try some board games if you're into video games that is console only try some mobile stuff and you're just experience things and just get a wealth of knowledge and when you understand that these big products are say video games are made by so many people other than programmers and artists and even engineers like the amount like i remember reading about killzone 2 back in the day that I was came out what or 2009 i want to say and that game they they hired architects like real world architects to help build you know their world the buildings because they wanted it to be as realistic as possible you know within the constraints of the game world they had and you would never think that an architect would be in the gaming industry or structural engineer or you know lawyers or you know this sort of stuff to actually make a game but they are so having that knowledge and even if let's say you're a designer or a programmer if you have some knowledge in architecture or some knowledge in the legal system that's gonna help plus it's gonna you're gonna approach the problem from a slightly different perspective 
and that will ultimately help you, you know, become a better designer, better developer, better whatever engineer. And if you can showcase that to the employer, they're going to be like, okay, th- this guy has these, you know, core skills that we want, programming, you know, art, design, whatever it is, but they have these secondary skills, which, you know, seem like they could be very useful as well. Cause so employers are, or can be very open to secondary skills you've got to have obviously those primary skills you're going for a programming role obviously you you know your primary stuff like programming needs to be solid needs to have a portfolio etc etc but if you have some secondary skills like let's say if it's just being able to do art and a employer will look at that and say okay they, they know how to develop they they might not necessarily want you to do the artwork but then they will think okay that you understand the art world or the artist's mindset. And as a result, you'll be able to communicate better with the artist. So it will all add up into, you know, something in the end. So just trying different experiences definitely helps a lot. And this is like the natural part of being human. Like something that I I struggled with as a kid was I was a really insecure, non, not, not a very confident kid, but I, I just thought that was how I was. That was my mental makeup. That was my chemistry. But the truth is, is that's everyone starts there. You know, confidence is your brain calculating the likelihood of success. And if you don't have any experience with anything, then your brain is correct to say, uh, you're probably going to fail at this, right? Like it's, it, it is logical to have low confidence as like an inexperienced teenager. But once you start doing something, just any, anything, and you get good at it, you're going to build confidence in that. And it actually makes, not only do you feel better and have better self-esteem as a person because you have this one trait you can lean on, but you'll find when you learn the next thing, you're faster to master that than you were before. So something like I see in my life is at this point, I'm almost 36 years old, which isn't even that old, but I've done so much in my life that when I pick up a new skill or try to learn something new, I can very quickly get to like a competent level just because there's something about it that's similar to writing or music or dancing or stand-up comedy or game design or, you know, basketball or whatever that you can, you can pull your confidence from these other traits and very quickly, not just get mediocre at something, but feel pretty good about getting mediocre so quickly and, and have this confidence that if you keep putting work into it, you'll keep getting better. Um, yeah. And, and you can even let games lead you in that direction. You know, it doesn't have to be like, oh, I need to just like think in a vacuum of what my destiny is and then go make it happen. Uh, when I was a kid, I loved Roller Coaster Tycoon. I was like one of my favorite games. It's such an, it's such a fun game. And because of that, I actually got really into roller coasters for like a year, it's, you know, early internet, like pre, <laughs> uh, pre having Reddit and stuff. But I found like roller coaster enthusiast forums and I could read what people who wrote a lot of roller coasters thought about roller coasters. And I, they kept journals. They would go on, they would go around to theme parks, ride roller coasters and make notes and stuff afterwards. And I started doing that. So I was like an 11 year old kid. And I lived in Florida, so luckily there's a lot of theme parks around. But like we would go to these theme parks and I would expressly be like, I need to ride every roller coaster. I need to make a note about it. And just like, I don't know, any other profession, I developed a taste for roller coasters. I developed, you know, I like these sort of loops or these sort of corkscrews. I don't like this sort of thing. I like ones that have this sort of element, but not this element. And not that I'm a master or anything, but like I have an educated opinion on roller coasters because for like a year and a half, I got really into roller coasters because of roller coaster tycoon. So whatever games you like, you know, if you like 
sports games, let that lead you outside to like try it for yourself. Or if you like um, civilization, use that as a, as a springboard to get more into history or more into real estate or, or interior design, or I don't know, like what, whatever things you find tangentially interesting from the games that you're interested in. Oh yeah, for sure. Because I remember playing Need for Speed games as a kid and, you know, that got me more into cars than I probably otherwise would have. Obviously I never went into, you know, some automobile industry or anything. I didn't do that, but you know, you never know that might lead you into that or that might, you know, enhance your sort of desire for that as a secondary hobby. So you never know where things might lead up. Don't say no to something just because it's not your typical normal thing. So I've got some fun generic questions now. So first one, would you rather run a 10 person company or a 1000 person company and why? Ooh. Uh, you know, probably a 10 person company, uh, just because I, I like being hands on. I like being kind of closer to the product and feeling like I have a stake in the decision-making. And I think a good CEO, uh, the further away you are from the action, the less impact you should have on that action. So if you're a CEO of a thousand person company, you're really, really managing a team of like 10 people, but those 10 people each have a team of 10 people. And those people each have a team, you know, like very quickly, you're managing some upper layer of management and giving them the tools to do the best job. But you're so far removed from the product that you're kind of making widgets in my head. Like the being the CEO of Pepsi is probably being similar to the CEO of IBM more so than like a game designer on right on the ground level of of these products oh yeah um what's your favorite video game oh oh ever oh what like now oh ever ever if you had an island and uh, you were stuck on an island that's the only one you could play oh my god oh god that's like an impossible question uh it would have to be something with a lot of really emergent gameplay, right? So it would have. Ah, <laughs> I mean, I'll I'll say I'm gonna say Team Fight Tactics. No, I don't know. I don't even know. I can't. I can't give you a good answer. I mean, it's obviously my tastes change over time. Magic: The Gathering is probably the game that I have played the most consistently over my life. You know, I've been playing Magic: The Gathering on and off, not like every single year, but there's probably never been like a three year period that's gone by where I haven't played a game of magic, the gathering. And that's been true since I was like seven years old. So, uh, magic, the gathering is the game that has been there throughout my entire life. It has probably taught me more about game design than any other game. Um, and I've met more friends, communities, uh, memorable moments, tournaments, live events, all that tied to magic, the gathering. So like if I had to die today, you could bury me with some magic cards. (laughs) <laughs> fair enough so what video game are you looking forward to i said starfield but honestly diablo 4 like i did diablo uh, diablo 2 was a huge game for me in middle school i played it a lot with my friends when diablo 3 came out i was working at zynga and i took time off like like literally like i said like you know some people take three days off to go to a wedding i'm taking three days off to play diablo 3 and i was playing right from launch and that's kind of like a a sad story because diablo 3 kind of had a disastrous launch like the servers were down it was really hard to get into so even though i had taken this day these time off work i actually like wasn't able to play as much as i maybe wanted to um so yeah i'm really looking forward to diablo 4 um 
open world Diablo sounds great. Really excited. So I'll, I'll, I'll do that. And then Starfield's kind of the next big game I'm, I'm looking forward to after that. Although, yeah, we'll see with my history of single player games. We'll see how long I stick with it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to Diablo 4 as well. Not long, I think it's out next week, actually. Yeah, yeah, the um, beta. I've, I've pre-ordered it and then the open beta. I'm actually traveling, so I don't know if I'm going to get to play the open beta, but I'll definitely watch it online if I can. Yeah, I'll check that, because I've played Diablo 3. Not original, I played when they... What, I can't remember what they called it, the remastered the expansion, version. The Reaper of Souls expansion, yeah. Yeah, when they remastered it for PS4, I played that one. And I, I never played a Diablo game before that, mm-hmm. but I really enjoyed that one. And it, it it's... I stopped playing it, and I started playing all the games, and I, every so often I keep saying to myself, I want to go back and play, and I'm like, oh, it's just been so long now. It's been, wow, I'm trying, trying to think how long it's been seven eight years and i'm uh, then i said i know i'm not going to but now that the new one's coming out i'm like okay i can start new you know the latest graphics the latest gameplay the latest everything Mm -hmm. and i can play this from the start and actually enjoy it so yeah i'm excited for this game the the reaper of souls expansion for diablo 3 is so good that honestly if that was the first thing that had come out like if, if reaper of souls was what diablo 3 launched as um it would have been one of the greatest game launches of all time. Like Reaper Souls is so good. It's so fun. And there was so much hype for Diablo 3. I mean, I think Diablo 3 sold more copies in the first like 24 hours than any Blizzard game had ever to that point. Um, and yeah, it just was kind of haunted by that bad launch. And if if it had launched as the kind of expansion version, I think you'd be talking like about a Hall of Fame game. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, because obviously I didn't have any of those launch issues because i didn't play it on launch sure. i played yeah. it afterwards so by the time i got it for the most part everything was ironed out which obviously good for me so would you rather i'm going to use us dollar amount uh, just to keep it simple would you rather have five million dollars up front or half a million a year for the rest of your life and why Oh, I can do math, buddy. Half a million a year for the rest of my life. <laughs> that's, uh, you know, like that's ten years. You're you're at even, uh, and I and I'm planning on living more than ten years. Uh, part of the reason why I actually would like the five hundred thousand a year for the rest of my life is that if I were to get five million dollars, the thing I would probably do with it is invest most or all of it um, into some sort of dividend paying stock or something that paid a return. Right. So if I put five million dollars. And something that was paying like 5%, what is that? Five million, it's like 250,000 a year. Um, and and five, a 5% investment is kind of hard to find that's also stable, you know, like that's yes. paying dividend, right? So if I put that 5 million in the bank, I get 250,000 for the rest of my life. Maybe it goes up or whatever. But if you just told me flat out, no risk, I get 500,000 for the rest of my life, whew, I'll take that. Especially because, you know, then then I could just spend the rest of my life making board games. <laughs> they could all be failure. It could all be financial yeah. failures. It wouldn't matter. Yeah. So, so is would is that like your passion more than making mobile games? No, no, no. no I, mean, I love mobile games? games, but what's fun about board games and what's fun also about um, when I was a YouTuber is that when you're a YouTuber, you can do everything by yourself, right? Like you are in charge of all the content, the release schedule, the thumbnails. You have like true full creative control over your youtube channel and while board games are collaborative with with other people it's a very small team i mean you can make a board game by yourself with one artist if you really wanted to and so 
I'm more like, you know, when people say they retire, they're like, oh, I can finally write my book as sort of a, like a, a dream of I get to do something fully to my own creative passions. And uh, so I, when I say make board games, I just mean that, like I could kind of work by myself on things. In practice, I don't think I would actually like working by myself for years. I would, I'm a very social person, but um you know, of course, there's always the dream of just like making enough money from passive investments that you could spend all day doing what truly whatever it is you want. Maybe that means not working for a while or bouncing between completely different projects that have no relation to each other. Uh, yeah. So have you tried to make any board games or made any board game before? Yeah, not yeah, necessarily yeah. Released ones, yeah. Yeah, nothing's gotten to the published state, but I have a it's, it's a very common hobby for me is spending time developing board games like uh, in the evening and. I've prototyped a few. I've played some. I think there's some ideas that I could take to the publishing phase, but honestly, I I like working at Supercell so much and I like the new game process at Supercell that it feels weird to spend 50 hours developing a board game because I could spend that 50 hours developing something new at Supercell and it would reach way more people and be a lot you know more relevant to my day-to-day life. But um, I could see, you know, it's always like a thing I'd like to do. Like there will be at some point in the future where I would like to ship a board game before I die. It's just not a high priority for me right now. Okay, fair enough. And do you force your like your friends and family to play the, you know test those board games with you? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> what yeah. are family and friends for? There, yeah. I'll be. I'll say though that a lot of the games I've designed are not that complicated or that long form. There's sort of a joke in the board game design community that like every new board game you have to test is some like six to twelve hour long thing that requires ten people to play. And like I, I don't want to play or make games like that. So fair enough. Okay, so I would love asking this question. Does money buy you happiness and why? And on top of that, what does a good life mean to you? <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, yes. Like money, money buys happiness in the sense that if you are somebody who can be happy, then money can get you to that point. But there are plenty of people who are just miserable. And if you're, if you're fundamentally miserable in your soul, then um, no amount of money is going to fix fix that. But certainly if you're somebody who has, I think, good emotional intelligence or you're well-balanced or you've got good relationships in your life, money, um, it, at least I've only seen it as a positive influence. But of course, I've never had $100 million. <laughs> and I'm certain that at some amount of money, it becomes more trouble than it's worth. But um, at least it's just like a middle-class tech employee, uh, you know, it's i certainly prefer being middle class to being poor growing up um what a good life looks like as far as i can tell it's all relationships and like who you know and spend time with and that doesn't necessarily mean romantic relationships but just um having a community having a mix of people who you like being around and who appreciate having you around seems at least to be the key to long life all the people who live to be 90 years old and still healthy and mentally sharp. It's because they have people that they see every day. They have conversations they need to have folks they check up on and that keeps you active. It keeps you mentally sharp. Uh, and it gives you on some, I don't know, spiritual level, like a reason to get out of bed in the morning or people that, you know, you know, are relying on you. So, um, whether you get that from a romantic relationship, from friends, from having children or, or from having pets, uh, you got to have other like living creatures that you interact with on a daily basis to have, to me, a, a full life. 
Oh, yeah, for sure. I totally agree. You know, with both aspects, money can do a lot for you, can buy certain elements of happiness, but you'll get to a certain point where if you just spend more money in that particular area of your life, you're not going to be happier, and then you need to focus on other areas. And some of those areas will require money. Some areas won't. Having, you know, meaningful relationships, having, you know, a meaningful, you know, purpose, you know, something to do. So, you know... Let's say if you love video games, you know, do something with that. Maybe it's gaming, you know, gaming and streaming, or maybe it's, you know, programming and making games, gain a job in it, or starting a podcast where you're just talking about the latest games and the latest game announcements, you know, something to, you know, keep your time occupied because otherwise you're just going to think too much about stuff that don't matter, even if you have money to spend. And so, yeah. It, it helps, but it's not the be-all and end-all, and you need to have a balance of everything. Money's not going to make your son love you, you know, like full stop. No. Like there's no amount of money that's just be like, oh yeah, I've never, like, you know, dad, I love you no matter what all the other stuff you've done. But um, one thing that I, is a big difference between, say, making $50,000 a year and $150,000 a year is money fixes annoyances. Money clears blockers. So if you make $50,000 a year, uh, and you have a fridge that breaks or your car's running weird, you have to kind of budget it, plan for it, maybe figure an alternate thing. You make 150000 a year, it becomes easy just to throw money at obstacles to get them out of the way. Like your car's running fine. Okay, take it to the shop tomorrow. Like doesn't even matter. You know, it takes $3,000 to repair it. Okay, whatever. You know, like fine. Yeah. I need a car. So like, it's not, we're not going to sit here and negotiate over whether or not I need a car. So like I have the money, I can afford it. Blech, let's get a car. You're feeling burnt out. You need some time off. Well, if you work at a job that lets you take three weeks off and you can afford a three week vacation outside of your city, then whoa, you know, like that is something where money is buying mental health in a way that it can't, if you work for 50,000 a year and your job doesn't let you take time off, you know, like it's, it's, I think naive to say that money does not have an impact on happiness. Um, and certainly it's one of the drivers for me going into say the gaming industry or the tech and, or rather it's, it's one of the drivers to me working at a corporate company, as opposed to like an indie startup with five people. One of the drivers is that like, I want people to actually play the games I make. Like I don't, I would not feel happy making a game that only 500 people downloaded, even if they all loved it. Like it, it would just feel like a waste of my time compared to I can make something that 10 million people play. And it's a nice benefit of that, that if 10 million people play it and it's a good game, I can like sleep comfortably at night. I'm not constantly like worried about how I'm going to pay the next bill because I know that there's something that consistently day over day is generating revenue. Oh yeah. And I think that's a, like a good, you know, part that you said about you know, when expenses come up or annoyances come up, you can, you, you don't have to think about it too much because I've seen it in my own life with my own parents and other parents as well, where they all get frustrated or angry with their kids and, or, you know, other people. And it's not because they're angry with that actual individual. It's because there's an annoyance in their life and not always money, but a lot of time it's just, it's money. And as a result, they're getting annoyed with them or they're not, making like they're not fulfilling the commitments that they made because they can't do it now maybe they can't afford to take you somewhere whereas you know they promised they would and maybe it's not expensive they don't have the time anymore because they're you know like you said 
instead of just taking your car to the garage, getting fixed after two hours and then pay a few hundred, maybe they're spending the whole weekend to try and fix it themselves. Yeah. You know, or something along those lines. You know, I've seen that before. In, I know in my own life, and like I said, in the lives of people close to me. And it's just stuff like that where you just think if you just had that bit of extra money that you could just solve those issues. Like you say, if, you know, if the fridge breaks down, you're not going to try and spend ages fixing it and spend three hours trying to fix it or do, do something with it instead of be like, okay, it is what it is. I'll either get something to repair it or it's clearly too far gone. I just buy a new fridge and I'll get a nice one as well. I'm not going to try and find some, you know, crazy ass deal on a fridge. That's probably not the best. Anyway, I can spend that time, you know, that weekend, that day with my child, with my family or, you know, doing the things that I love because you can still be single and still benefit from it because you know you don't want to be trying to fix your car or fix your fridge if you're not into that you might be into that you might be love you know being a mechanic that's fair enough that's different but most people don't you don't want to do that if you could you know play video games if you could go to the cinema if you could go on a hike for for example you know whatever you're into so having the ability to say okay things have cropped up it is what it is. Or if you're out, I know, you know, there's been times in my life where we've been out and when I was a kid, and if we wanted something to drink, it's just super expensive at obviously, you know, a service station and, you know, a gas station in America. In that drink in the supermarket will probably, probably cost you 50p. In the service station, it's two pounds. And it's like, nope, not getting that bottle of water, even though you're really thirsty, or not getting, you know, a packet of crisps because it's just so much more expensive. It, it's it's stuff like that as well. You can just think, okay, I want it. And, or, you know, I do need it. You know, I need a bit of water. I'll spend that extra bit of money this one time. It's okay. It's not the end of the world. And that sort of stuff can... If it doesn't make you happier, it definitely prevents you from getting more upset. Yeah, yeah. And again, it's such a fixer for frustration. Like uh, my mom used to say, you can't put a price on frustration. And so if you're frustrated with something and money can solve it quickly and you can afford it, that that is a huge increase in your quality of life. But hey, uh, it's getting a bit late here in Finland. Uh, I might I might have to wrap this up kind of soon. That's fine. That was actually my last question. So, oh man, uh, I read your mind. Yes, <laughs> so, so, so I was ready to wrap up. Anyway, so yeah, I want to thank you, Seth, for jumping on the podcast today. I'm sure you know the audience has found it insightful, learning about the inside world of, world of Supercell, because I don't really see many videos about Supercell outside of, you know, about their games and about the success of Supercell, but the inside of it, being great to hear from you. And obviously just appreciate you coming on to the podcast today and hopefully you enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, we do talks at GDC every year. And so this year we actually have a, a talk at GDC about our rendering engines. It's actually a tech talk, whereas we normally do a lot of design talks. But mm-hmm. if any of one in your audience is attending GDC uh, this year in 2023, make sure to stop by and check out the Supercell talk there. Okay, awesome. Because I won't be attending it, but I'm definitely going to check out that talk. It definitely sounds interesting because, like you said, it's a technical talk and a you know uh, how you do the rendering techniques. So that's definitely something I'm going to be checking out. So thank you for coming on, Seth. If you enjoyed the podcast, just you know, just subscribe to it on your platform, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, etc. And I'll see you in the next week. I mean, in the next episode of Fire Dev. Bye bye.